The following is a conversation with Matthew Johnson, a professor of psychiatry and behavioral science at John Hopkins, and is one of the top scientists in the world conducting seminal research on psychedelics. This was one of the most eye-opening and fascinating conversations I've ever had on this podcast. I'm sure I'll talk with Matt many more times. Quick mention of his sponsor, followed by some thoughts related to the episode. Thank you to a new sponsor, Brave, a fast browser that feels like Chrome, but has more privacy-preserving features. Neuro, the maker of functional sugar-free gum and mints that I use to give my brain a quick caffeine boost. Four Sigmatic, the maker of delicious mushroom coffee. I'm just now realizing how ironic the set of sponsors are. And Cash App, the app I use to send money to friends. Please check out these sponsors in the description to get a discount and to support this podcast. As a side note, let me say that psychedelics is an area of study that is fascinating to me in that it gives hints that much of the magic of our experience arises from just a few chemical interactions in the brain and that the nature of that experience can be expanded through the tools of biology, chemistry, physics, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The fact that a world-class scientist and researcher like Matt can apply rigor to our study of this mysterious and fascinating topic is exciting to me beyond words, as is the case with any of my colleagues who dare to venture out into the darkness of all that is unknown about the human mind with both an openness of first principle thinking and the rigor of the scientific method. If you enjoy this thing, subscribe on YouTube, review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, support on Patreon, or connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman. As usual, I'll do a few minutes of ads now and no ads in the middle. I try to make these interesting, but I give you timestamps, so if you skip, please still check out the sponsors by clicking the links in the description. It's the best way to support this podcast. This show is sponsored by Brave, a fast, privacy-preserving browser that feels like Google Chrome, but without ads or the various kinds of tracking that ads can do. I love using it more than any other browser, including Chrome. If you like, you can import bookmarks and extensions from Chrome as I did. The Brave browser is free, available on all platforms. It's actively used by 20 million people. Speed-wise, it just feels more responsive and snappier than other browsers, so I can tell there's a lot of great engineering behind the scenes. It has a lot of privacy-related features that Chrome does not. Like, it includes options like a private window with Tor for those seeking advanced privacy and safety. Tor is uh, fascinating, by the way, and I'm sure I'll talk about it in the future. Get the Brave browser at brave.com slash lex, and it might become your favorite browser as well. That's brave.com slash flex. This show is also sponsored by Neuro, a company that makes functional gums and mints that supercharge your mind with a sugar-free blend of caffeine, L-theanine, and B6 and B12 vitamins. It's loved by Olympians and engineers alike. I personally love the mint gum. It helps me focus during times when I can use a boost. My favorite two use cases are before long run, and also in the morning at the start of a deep work session. For me, it's really important to get the first 10 to 20 minutes off to a great start. That's when the desire to think about and check on the stresses of the previous day is strongest, but that's when it's most important to calm the mind and focus on the task at hand. Anyway, two pieces of neuro gum has one cup of coffee worth of caffeine, 
Neuro is offering 15% off when you use code LEX at checkout. So go to getneuro.com and use code LEX. That's getneuro.com and use code LEX. This show is also sponsored by Four Sigmatic, the maker of delicious mushroom coffee and plant-based protein. I enjoy both. The coffee has lion's mane mushroom for productivity and chaga mushroom for immune support. The plant-based protein has immune support as well and tastes delicious. Supporting your immune system is one of the best things you can do to stay healthy in this difficult time for the human species. They have a big holiday sale just for you. Not only does Four Sigmatic always have 100% money back guarantee, but right now you can try their amazing product for up to 50% off. On top of the uh, up to 50% off, we've worked out an exclusive additional 10% off all sale products. But this is just for listeners of this podcast. If you go to foursigmatic.com slash Lex, that's foursigmatic.com slash Lex. This show is also presented by Cash App, the number one finance app in the App Store. When you get it, use code Lex Podcast. Cash App lets you send money to friends, buy Bitcoin, and invest in the stock market with as little as $1. I'm thinking of doing more conversations with folks who work in and around the cryptocurrency space. Similar to artificial intelligence, there are a lot of charlatans in this space, but there's also a lot of free thinkers and technical geniuses that are worth exploring ideas with in depth and with care. In general, if I make mistakes in guest selection and details in conversation, I'll keep trying to improve, correct where I can, and also keep following my curiosity wherever it takes me. So again, if you get Cash App from the App Store, Google Play, and use the code LEXPODCAST, you get $10, and Cash App will also donate $10 to FIRST, an organization that is helping to advance robotics and STEM education for young people around the world. And now, here's my conversation with Matthew Johnson. Can you give an introduction to psychedelics, like a whirlwind overview? Maybe what are psychedelics and uh, what are the kinds of psychedelics out there and in whatever way you find meaningful to categorize? Yeah, you can categorize them by their chemical structure. So phenethylamines, tryptamines, ergolines, um, that is, is less of a meaningful way to classify them. I, I think that their pharmacological activity, their receptor activity is the best way. Well, let me, let me start even broader than that because there I'm talking about the classic psychedelics. So broadly speaking, when we say psychedelic, that refers to, for most people, a broad number of compounds that work in different pharmacological ways. So it includes the so-called classic psychedelics. That includes psilocybin, and psilocin, which are in mushrooms, LSD, dimethyltryptamine or DMT, it's in ayahuasca, people can smoke it too, mescaline, which is in peyote and San Pedro, cactus. Um, and those all work by hitting a certain uh, subtype of serotonin receptor, the serotonin 2A receptor. It's, they act as agonists at that receptor. Other compounds like PCP, 
ketamine, MDMA, ibogaine. They all are more broadly speaking called psychedelics, but they work by uh, very different ways pharmacologically. And they have some different effects, including sub subjective effects, even though there's enough of an overlap in the subjective effects that you know people informally refer to them as psychedelic. And I think what that overlap is, you know, compared to say, you know, caffeine and cocaine and you know, Ambien, et cetera, um, other psychoactive drugs, is that they have strong effects in altering one's sense of reality and including the sense of self. And I should throw in there that that cannabis more historically, like in the 70s, has been called a minor psychedelic. And I think with that latter definition, it 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 does fit that definition, particularly if one doesn't have a, a tolerance. So you mentioned serotonin. So most of the effect comes from something around like the, the chemistry around neurotransmitters and so on. So it's uh, chemical interactions in, in the brain, or is there other kinds of interactions that have this kind of perception and self-awareness altering effects? Well, as far as we know, all of the the psychedelics of all the different classes um, we've 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 talked about, it, their major activity is caused by receptor level events. So either acting at the post receptor side of the synapse. So, in other words, neurotransmission operates by you know one neuron releasing neurotransmitter into a synapse, a gap between the two neurons, and then the other neuron um, receives. They have It has receptors that receives, and then there can be an act activation um, you know, caused by that. So it's like a pitcher and a catcher. Yep. So all of the major psychedelics work by either acting as a pitcher, mimicking a, 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 a pitcher or a catcher. So for example, the classic psychedelics, they fit into the same catcher's mitt, on the post-receptor, uh, post-synaptic receptor side as serotonin itself. But they do a slightly different thing to the, to the cell, to the neuron, than serotonin does. Um, there's a different signaling pathway after that initial activation. Something like MDMA works at the presynaptic side, the pitcher side, and basically it floods the synapse or the gap between the cells with a bunch of serotonin, the natural um, neurotransmitter. So it's like the the pitcher in a baseball game all of a sudden just starts throwing balls like every every second. <laughs> Everything we're talking about is it uh, often more natural, meaning found in the natural world. You mentioned cacti, cactus, or is it uh, chemically manufactured, like uh, artificially in the lab? So the classic psychedelics, there's. Um, what are the classics? So yeah. uh, using terminology that's not chemical terminology, not like the terminology you see in titles of papers, academic papers, but more sort of common parlance. Right. It would be good to kind of define their, you know, their effects, like how they're different. And so it includes LSD, psilocybin, which is in mushrooms, mescaline, DMT. Which one is mescaline? Sorry. Mescaline is in the different cacti. So the one most people will know is is peyote, but it also shows up in San Pedro or Peruvian torch. And all of these classic psychedelics, they have at the right dose, you know, and, and typically they have very strong effects on one's sense of reality and one's sense of self. What some of the things that makes them different than other 
more broadly speaking, psychedelics like MDMA and 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 others is that they're um, at least the the major examples. There are some exotic ones that differ, but the ones I've talked about are extremely safe at the physiological level. Like there's like LSD and psilocybin. There's no known lethal overdose unless you have like really severe, you know. Um, heart disease, you know, because it modestly raises your blood pressure. So right. same person might be hurt shoveling snow or going up the stairs, you know, that could you know, have a car, they could have a, have, a, have a cardiac event because they've taken a, um, uh, one of these drugs. But for most people, you know, someone could take a thousand times what the effective dose is and it's not going to cause any organ damage, affect the brainstem, make them stop breathing. So in that sense, you know, it's, they're they're freakishly safe at the physiological. I would never mm-hmm. call any compound safe because there's always a risk. They're freakishly safe at the physiological level. I mean, you can hardly find anything over the counter like that. I mean, aspirin's not like that. Caffeine yeah. is not like that. Most drugs, you take five, ten, twenty, maybe it takes a hundred, but you get to some times the effective dose, and it's going to kill you. Yeah, or cause some serious damage. And so that's that's something that's remarkable about, about these most of these classic psychedelics. That's incredible, by the way, that you can go on a hell of a journey in the mind, like probably transformative, potentially in a like deeply transformative way, and yet there's no dose that in most people would have a lethal effect. That's kind of fascinating. There's yes. a, this duality between the mind and the body. It's like, uh, it's the, <laughs> okay, sorry if I bring him up way too much, but David Goggins is like, uh, you know, the kind of things you go on a, on a long run, like the hell you might go through in your mind. Your mind can take a lot and you can go through a lot with the mind and the body will just be its own thing. You can go through hell, but uh, after a good night's sleep, be back to normal and the right. body is always there. So, so bringing it back to Goggins, it's like you can do that without even destroying your knee or whatever right. or, having, oh, yes. or coming close and riding that line. That's true. So the, the unfortunate thing about the running, which he uses running to test the mind, so the the aspect of running that uh, is negative, in order to test the mind, you really have to uh, push the body, like take the body through a journey. I wish there was another way of uh, doing that in the physical exercise space. I think there are exercises that are easier on the body than others, but uh, running sure is a hell of an effective way to do it. And but- one of the ways that where it differs is that you're, unlike exercise, you're essentially, you know, most exercise required to really get to those intense levels, you, you really need to be persistent about it. Right. I, I mean, it'll be intense if you're really out of shape, just you know, jogging for five minutes. But to really get to those intense levels, you need to you know have the dedication. And so, some of the other ways of of, of altering um, subjective uh, effects or, or states of consciousness take that type of dedication. Psychedelics, though, I mean, someone takes the right dose, I mean, they're strapped into the roller coaster. Um, and some, something interesting is going to happen. And I really like what you said about that, 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 that distinction between the mind or the contrast between the, the mind effects and the, the bodily, uh, the body effects, because, um, I think of, of this, I, I, I do research with all the drugs, you know, caffeine, alcohol, methamphetamine, cocaine, alcohol, legal, illegal, most of these drugs, um, thinking about say cocaine and methamphetamine you can't give a, a, to a regular user you can't safely give a dose where the co- regular cocaine user is going to say oh man that's like that's the strongest coke i've ever had you know 
Um, because, you know, you get it past the ethics committee and you need approval. And, and I wouldn't want to give someone something that's dangerous. So yes. to go to those levels where they would say that, you would have to give something that's physiologically riskier. Yeah. You know, psilocybin or LSD, you can give a dose at the physiological level that is like very good chance it's going to be the most intense psychological experience of that person's life. Yeah, that's And amazing. have zero chance for most people if you screen them of killing them. The big the big risk is behavioral toxicity, which is f a fancy way of saying doing something stupid. I mean, you're really intoxicated like if you wander into traffic or you fall from a height just like plenty of people do on yes. high doses of alcohol. And the other kind of unique thing about about psych classic psychedelics is that they're not addictive, which is pretty much unheard of when it comes to so-called drugs of abuse or or drugs that people at least at some frequency choose to take you know most of what we think of as drugs um you know even caffeine alcohol cocaine cannabis um most of these you can get into alcohol you can get into a daily use pattern and that's just extreme so unheard of with psychedelics most people have taken these things on a daily basis it's more like they're building up the courage to do it and then they build up a tolerance or yeah you know, they're in college and they do it on a dare can you take Yes. Take acid seven days in a row and yes. that type of thing, rather than a self-control issue yes. where you have and say, oh God, I got to stop taking this. I got to stop drinking every night. I got to cut down on the Coke, whatever. So that's the classic psychedelics. Uh, what are the, uh, what's a good term, modern psychedelics or, or more maybe psychedelics that are created in the lab? What else is there? <laughs> right. So MDMA is the big one. And I should say that that, that with the classic psychedelics, that LSD is sort of, you can call it a semi-synthetic because there's 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 natural, you know, from, from both ergot and in certain seeds, um, uh, morning glory seeds is one example. There's a very close, there are some very close uh, chemical relatives of LSD. So LSD is close to what occurs in nature, but not quite. It's, but then when we get into the, the other... Um, non-classic psychedelics, probably the most prominent one is MDMA. People call it ecstasy. People call it molly. Um, and it is uh, it, it differs from classic psychedelics in a number of ways. It can be addictive, but not so. It's like you can have cocaine on this end of the, of the continuum and classic psychedelics here. Continuum of addiction. Continuum of addiction. You know, So it's certainly no cocaine. It's pretty rare for people to get into daily use patterns, but it's possible and they can get into more like, you know, using once a week pattern that they, where they can find it hard to, to stop. But it's, it's somewhere in between mostly towards the, to the classic psych psychedelic side in terms of like relatively little addiction potential. Um, but it's also more physiologically dangerous. I, I think that the, certainly the therapeutic use, um, it, it's showing really promising effects for treating PTSD and the models that are used. I think those are extremely acceptable when it comes to the risk benefit ratio that you see all throughout medicine. Um, but nonetheless, that we, we do know that at a certain dose and a certain frequency that MDMA can cause long-term damage to the serotonin system in the brain. So it doesn't have that level of kind of freakish bodily safety that that the classic psychedelics do. And it has more of a, a heart load, a cardiovascular. I don't mean kind of emotion. I mean, <laughs> in this sense, although it is very emotional and that's yes. something unique about its uh, subjective effects, but it's more of a, a presser. 
And uh, the terminology used instead of uh, like a freakish capacities, allowing you from a researcher perspective, but a personal perspective too, of taking a journey with uh, some of these psychedelics that is um, the heroic dose, as they say. So like uh, these are tools that allow you to take a serious mental journey, whatever that is. That's what you mean. And with MDMA, there's a little bit, it starts entering this territory where you gotta be careful about the risks uh, to the body potentially. So yes, that in, in the sense that you can't kind of push the dose up as high yeah. as you, safely um, as one can if they're in the right setting, like in our research, as they can with the with the classic psychedelics. But probably more importantly, the just the nature of the effects with MDMA aren't mm. the full on psychedelic. Got it. It's not the full journey, you know? So it, it's sort of, a psychedelic with rose-colored glasses on, um, a psychedelic that's more of, it's been called more of a heart trip than a head trip. The nature of reality doesn't mm -hmm. unravel as, as frequently as it does Got with it. classic psychedelics. But you're able to more directly sense your environment. So your perception system still works. It's not completely detached from reality with MDMA. That That's true, relatively speaking. That said, at most doses and uh, of classic psychedelics, you still have a, a tether to, to reality right. changes a little bit when you're talking about smoking DMT or smoking 5-methoxy DMT, um, which are some interesting, interesting examples we could talk more about. But with, um, yeah, with MDMA, it, it, it's, for example, it's, it's very rare to have a, a, a what's called an ego loss experience or a sense of transcendental un unity, um, where one really seemingly loses the psychological, construct of the self you know but um mdma it's very common for people to have this you know they still are perceiving themselves as a self but uh it, it's common for them to have this this warmth this empathy for humanity and for their friends and loved ones so it's more it's and you see those effects under the classic psychedelics but it, that's a subset of what the classic psychedelics do so i see mdma in terms of its subjective effects is if you think about um uh, Venn diagrams, it's sort of MDMA is all within the classic psychedelics. So okay. everything that you see on a particular MDMA session, sometimes a psilocybin session looks just like that. But then sometimes it's completely different with psilocybin. It's a little more narrowed in terms of the variability with MDMA. Is there something general to say about what the psychedelics do to the human mind? You mentioned kind of an ego loss experience in the space of Venn diagrams. If we're to like draw a big circle, what can we say about that big circle? In terms of people's report of subjective experience, probably one of the most general things we can say is that it it expands that range. So many people come out of these sessions saying that they didn't know it was possible to have an experience like that. So there's an emphasis on the subjective experience that, um, is is there words that people put it put to it that capture that experience or uh, is it something that just has to be experienced? Yeah, people, like. As a researcher, that's an interesting question because you have to kind of measure uh, the, um, the effects of this and uh how do you convert that into numbers right that that's a, that's the ultimate challenge so how is that even is that possible to one convert it into words 
and the second convert the words into numbers somehow. So we do a lot of that with questionnaires, you know, some of which are very psychometrically validated. So they lots of numbers have been crunched on them. And there's always a limitation with with questionnaires. I mean, subjective effects are subjective effects. Ultimately, it's what the person is reporting, and and that doesn't necessarily point towards a ground truth. Um, right. What what they're so, for example, if someone says that it, they felt like they touched another dimension, or they felt like they they sensed the reality of God, mm-hmm. or if they, um, you know, um, I mean, just you name it, people's ontological views can sometimes shift. I think that's more about where they're coming from, and I don't think it's the the quintessential way in which they work. There's plenty of people that hold onto a completely naturalistic viewpoint and come and, and have profound and and and, and helpful experiences with these compounds, but the subjective effects can be so broad that for some people it shifts their 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 philosophical viewpoint mm-hmm. more towards idealism, more towards you know thinking of let that the nature of reality might be more about consciousness than about material. That's a domain I'm very interested in. Right now we have essentially zero to say about that in terms of validating those types of claims. But it's even interesting just to see what people say along those lines. So you're interested in saying like, can we more rigorously study this process of expansion? Like, what do we mean by this expansion of your sense of what is possible in the experiences in this world? Right, as much as what we can say about that through naturalistic psychology. Right. Especially as much as we can root it to... um, solid psychological constructs and solid neuroscientific constructs. And I wonder what the impact is of the language that you bring to the table. So you mentioned about God or um, speaking of God, a lot of people are really into sort of theoretical physics these days at a very surface level. And you can bring the language of physics, right? You can talk about quantum mechanics. You can talk about general general relativity and uh, curvature of space-time. And using just that language without a deep technical understanding of it, to somehow start thinking like, sort of visualizing atoms in your head and somehow through that process, because you have the language, using that language to kind of dissolve the ego, like realize like that we're just all little bits of physical objects that behave in mysterious ways. And so that, that has to do with the language. Like if you read a Sean Carroll book or something recently, it seems like has a huge influence on the way you uh, might experience, might perceive the world, and might experience the alteration that psychedelics brings to the um, to the your perception system. So I wonder, like the language you bring to the table, how that affects the journey you go on with the psychedelics. I think very much so, and and I think there's I'm a little concerned. Some of the science is going a little too far in the direction of of around the edges, you know, speaking about it changing beliefs in this sense or that sense about particular in particular domains. And I think what really what a lot of what's going on is what you just discussed. It's, it's the priors coming into, into it. So if you've been reading a lot of, you know, um, physics, then you might, you know, um, bring up, you know, like, you know, space time and interpret the experience in, in that sense. I mean, it's not uncommon for people come out talking about visions of the. Uh, it's not the most typical thing, but it's come up in sessions I've I've guided. Um, the Big Bang, um, and the 
you know, this sort of nature of reality. I, I, mm-hmm. I think probably the, the best way to think about these experiences is that, and, and the best evidence, even though we're in our infancy and understanding it, that they really tap into more general psychological mechanisms. I think one of the best arguments is they, 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 they reduce the influence of the, of our priors, mm-hmm. of what we bring into the, the, all of the assumptions that we all, that, you know, we're essentially, especially as adults, we're riding on top of heuristic after heuristic to get through life. And and you need to do that. And that's a good thing. And that's extremely efficient. And evolution has shaped that. But that comes at an expense. And I, it seems that these experiences will will allow someone greater mental flexibility and openness. And so one can be both less influenced by their their prior assumptions but still nonetheless the nature of the experience can be influenced by the, what yeah. they've been exposed to in the world and sometimes they can get it at a deeper in a deeper way like maybe they've read i mean i had a philosophy professor one time <laughs> as a as a participant yeah. in a high dose psilocybin study and he's like i remember him saying my god it's like hegel's opposites defining each other like <laughs> i get it i've yeah. taught this thing for yeah. You know, years and years and years. Like I get it now, and so like that, you know, and and even at the psychological, emotional level, like the cancer patients um, we worked with, you know, they told themselves a million times, or the people trying to quit smoking, I need to quit smoking. Oh, I'm I'm ruining my life with this cancer. I'm still healthy. I should be getting out. I'm letting this thing defeat me. It's like, yeah, you told yourself that in your head, but sometimes they had these experiences, and they kind of feel it in their heart, like they really get it. So in some sense that uh, you bring some prize to the table, but psychedelics allow you to acknowledge them and then throw them away. So like one popular terminology around this in the engineering space is first principles thinking that uh, Elon Musk, for example, espouses a lot. Let me ask a fun question before we uh, return to a more serious discussion. With Elon Musk, as an example, but it could be just engineers in general. Do you think there's a use for psychedelics to uh, take a a journey of rigorous first principles thinking? So like throwing away, we're not talking about throwing away assumptions about the nature of reality in terms of like our philosophy of the way we live day-to-day life, but we're talking about like how how to build a better rocket Mm -hmm. or how to build a better car or how to build a better uh, social network or all those kinds of things, engineering questions. I absolutely think there's huge potential there. And it's uh, there was some research in the um, late 60s, early 70s that were, it was you know, very early and not very rigorous in terms of um, methodology, but um, it was consistent with the, I mean, there's just countless anecdotes of folks. I mean, people have argued that just, you know, Silicon Valley was was largely <laughs> influenced by psychedelic experience. I mm-hmm. I remember the I, th- I think the the person that came up with the, the concept of freeware or shareware. It's like mm-hmm. it, it kind of was generated, you know, out of uh, or influenced by psychedelic experience. You know, so to this, I I think there's incredible potential there, and we know really next. There's no rigorous research uh, on that, but. Is there anecdotal stuff like with Steve Jobs? I think there's stories, right? In your exploration of it, is there something a little bit more than just stories? Is there like a little bit more of a solid data points, even if they're just 
experiential like anecdotes is there something that you draw inspiration from like in your intuition because we'll talk about you're trying to construct studies that are more rigorous around these questions but is there something you draw inspiration from from the past from the 80s and the 90s and silicon valley that kind of space uh, or is it just like you have a sense based on everything you've learned and these kind of loose stories that there's something worth digging at I am influenced by the, gosh, the the, the inc just incredible number of, of anecdotes surrounding right. these. I mean, um, uh, Kerry Mollis, he he invented PCR. I mean, absolutely revolutionized biological sciences. He says he wouldn't have you know, won the Nobel Prize from it, said he wouldn't have come up with that had he not had psychedelic experiences. Um you know, now he's an interesting character. People should read his autobiography because you could point to other things he was into. But but I think that speaks to the, the casting your nets wide and this mental yeah. flex. More of these general, the, these general mechanisms where sometimes if you cast your nets really wide, and it's going to depend on the person and their influences. But sometimes you come up with false positives. You, you know, um, you know, you connect the dots where right. maybe you shouldn't have connected those dots. But it it. I think that can be constrained and 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 so much of our not only our personal psychological suffering but our our limitations um academically and in terms of technology are because of these self-imposed limitations and and heuristics the these entrenched ways of thinking you know like you know, those examples throughout the history of science where someone has come up with a a, a rat the paradigm Kuhn's paradigm shifts it's like Here's something completely different. Yeah. You know, this doesn't make sense by any of the previous models. And like, we need more of those. We, I mean, you know, and then you need the right balance between that because so many of the, you know, novel crazy ideas are just bunk. And you, you need, that's what science is about, separating them from, from the valid paradigm shifting ideas. But we need more paradigm shifting ideas like in a big way. And I think we could, I think you could argue that we've, because of the structure of academia and science in modern times, it heavily biases against those. Right, it, uh, there's all kinds of mechanisms in our human nature that resist paradigm shift quite sort of obviously. Uh, so, and uh, psychedelics, there could be a, a lot of other tools, but it seems like psychedelics could be one set of tools that encourage paradigm shifting thinking. So like the first principles kind of thinking. So right. it's a kind of, um, you're at the forefront of research here. There's just kind of anecdotal stories. There's uh, early studies. There's a sense that we don't understand very much, but there's a lot of depth here. How do we get from there to where Elon and I can regularly, like I wake up every morning, I have deep work sessions where it's well understood uh, like what dose to take, like if I want to explore something where it's all legal, where it's all understood and safe, all that kind of stuff. How do we get from uh, where we are today to there? Not speaking in terms of legality in the sense like policy making, all that like laws and stuff, meaning like how do we scientifically understand this stuff well enough to get to a place where I can just take it safely in order to expand my uh, 
thinking, like this kind of first principles thinking, which I'm in my personal life currently doing, like how do I revolutionize a particular several things? Like uh, it seems like the only tools I have right now, it's just, <laughs> just, but my mind going doing the first principles, like, wait, 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 okay. Why has this been done this way? Can we do it completely differently? It seems like I'm still tethered to the priors that I bring to the table and I keep trying to untether myself, maybe there's tools that can systematically help me untether. Yeah, well, we need experiments, you know, and that's that's tied to kind of the policy level stuff. Um, and I should be clear, I would I'd never encourage anyone to do anything um, illicitly, but yeah, I, you know, uh, in the future, we could see these, these, you know, compounds used for the, for, for technical and, and scientific innovation. What we need are studies that are digging into that. Right now, most of what the the funding, which is largely fun from philanthropy, um, not from the government, um, largely what it's for is is treatment of of mental disorders like addiction and, and depression, et cetera. Um, but we need studies. You know, one of the early initial stabs um, on this question decades ago was they took some architects and engineers and said, what what problems have you been working on? Where have you been stuck for months, like working on this damn thing and you're not getting anywhere? You're like your head's butting up against the wall. It's like, come in here, take, and I think it was 100 micrograms of LSD. So not a big session. And a little bit different model where they were actually working. It was a moderate enough dose where they could work on the problem during the session. I think probably I'm an empiricist, so I'd, I'd like to see all the studies done. But right. the first thing I would do is like a really high dose session where you're not necessarily in front of your, you know, computer, you know, which you can't really do on a on a really high dose. And then the um, the work has been talked about, like you take a really high dose, you take a journey, and then the breakthroughs come from when you return from the journey and like integrate, quote unquote that experience. I think that's where the, all the, and we're, again, we're, we're babies at, right. at, at this point, but this my gut tells me, yeah. yeah, that, that it's the, it's the so-called integration, the aftermath. We know that there's some form, different forms of neuroplasticity that are unfolding in the days following a psychedelic, at least in animals, probably going on humans. We don't know if that's related to the therapeutic effects. My, my, my gut tells me it is, although it's, it's only part of, of the story, but, but we need big studies where we compare people, like let's get a hundred people like that, scientists that are working on a problem and then randomize them to, and, and then I think you, you need a, uh, um, even more credible, you know, active controls or active placebo conditions to con kind of tease this out. Um, and then also in conjunction with that, and you can do this in the same study, you want to combine that with more rigorous sort of, um, experimental models where we actually get there are problem solving tasks that we know, for example, that you tend to do better on after you've gotten a good night's sleep versus not. And my, my sense is there's a relationship there. You know, people go back to first you know, principles, you know, questioning those first principles they're operating under and, um, you know, getting away from their priors in terms of creative problem solving. And so you, you, I think wrap those things and you could speak a little more rigorously about those because ultimately if everyone's bringing their own problem, that's, that's, I think that's more in the face valid side, but you can't dig in as much and, and get as much experimental power and speak to the mechanisms as you can with having everyone do the same sort of, you know, canned, you know, problem solving task. 
So we've been speaking about psychedelics generally. Is there one you find from the scientific perspective or maybe even philosophical perspective most fascinating to study? Therapeutically, I'm most interested in psilocybin and LSD. And I think we need to do a lot more with LSD because it's mainly been psilocybin in the modern era. I've recently gotten a, a grant from the Hefter Research Institute to, to do an LSD study. So I haven't started it yet, but I'm going through the paperwork and everything. And uh, Therapeutic meaning... There's some issue and you're trying to treat that issue. Right, right. In terms of just like what's the most fascinating, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. understanding the nature of these experiences, if you really want to like wrap your head around what's going on when someone has an, a, a completely altered sense of reality and sense of self, there I think you're, you're talking about the, the, the high dose, either smoked, vaporized or intravenous injection, which all kind of, um, they're very similar pharmacologically, uh, of DMT and 5-methoxy-DMT. This is like when people, this is what, I don't know if you're familiar with Terrence McKinney, he would talk mm -hmm. a lot about smoking DMT. Joe Rogan has, has talked a lot about that. People will say that, and there's a close relative called 5-methoxy-DMT. Most people who know the terrain will say that's, that's an order of magnitude or orders of magnitude beyond I mean, anything one could get from even a high dose of psilocybin or LSD. Um, I think it's a question about whether, you know, how therapeutic, I, I think there is a therapeutic potential there, but it's probably not as sure of a bet because one goes so far out, it's almost like they're, they're not contemplating their relationship and their direction <laughs> in life. They are like, reality is ripping apart at the seams and, yeah. and the very nature of the of the self and of the sense of reality and the amazing thing about these compounds, and same to a less degree with the, you know, with oral psilocybin and LSD, is that unlike some some other drugs that that really throw you far out there, um, you know, anesthetics and and even uh, even alcohol, like it, it, as reality starts to become different at higher and higher doses, there's there's this numbing, mm -hmm. there's this sort of um, there's this ability for the sense of being the center, having a conscious experience that's memorable, that is maintained throughout these classic psychedelic experiences. Like one can go as far, so far out while still being aware of the experience and so, remembering the experience. Interesting. So being able to carry something back. Right. Can you uh, dig in a little deeper? Like, what is uh, DMT? How long is the trip usually? Like, how much do we understand about it? Is there something interesting to say uh, about just the, the nature of the experience and what we understand about it? One of the common methods for people to use it is to, is to smoke it or vaporize it. And it usually takes, and this is a pretty good kind of description of what it might feel like on the ground. Um, the caveat is it's 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 a completely insufficient description and someone's going to be listening who has done this. <laughs> it's, it's like nothing you could say is going to come close. Yeah. But it'll take about three big hits, inhalations, in order to have what people call a breakthrough dose. Um, and there's no great definition of that, but basically meaning moving away from, you know, not just having the typical psilocybin or LSD experience where like things are radically different, but you're still basically a person in this reality to go in somewhere else. Hmm. And yeah. so that'll typically take like three hits. 
And this stuff comes on like a freight train. So one takes a hit and around the time of the first exhalation, so we're talking about a few seconds in, or maybe just, you know, sometime between the first and the second hit, like it'll start to come on. And they're already up to, let's say, um, you know, what they might get from a 30 milligram or, or 300 microgram LSD trip, a big trip. They're already there when at the second hit, but it's, they're going, their consciousness is geared. This is like acceleration, not speed to speak of <laughs> physics. Okay. Yes. It's like, you're just, those receptors are getting filled like that. And they're going from zero to 60 in like, you know, Tesla time. Yeah. And at the second hit, again, they're at this, maybe the strongest psychedelic experience they've ever had. And then if they can take that third hit, even <laughs> some people can't, they're, I mean, they're, they're propelled into this other reality and the nature of that other reality it will, will, will differ depending on who you ask. But, you know, folks will talk often talk about, and, and, and we've done some survey research on this entities of different types. Elves tend to pop up. <laughs> yeah. All the caveat is I, I strongly presume all of this is culturally influenced, you nice. know, but thinking more about the psychology and the neuroscience, there is probably something fundamental, you know, like for, for someone that might be colored as elves, others that might be colored as, um, I don't know, Terrence McKenna called them self-dribbling basketballs. For someone else, it, it might be little animals or someone else, it might be aliens. Um, I think that probably is dependent on who they are and what they've been exposed to. But just the fact that one has this sense that they're surrounded by autonomous entities. Right, intelligent autonomous entities. Right, and people come back with stories that are just astonishing. Like there's communication between these entities and often they're telling them things that 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 the person says are self-validating, but it seems like it's impossible. Like it really seems like, and again, the, this is what people say mm -hmm. oftentimes, that it's it really is like downloading some intelligence from mm. a higher dimension or some whatever metaphor you want to use. Sometimes these things come up in dreams where it's like someone is exposed to something that I've had this in a in a dream, you know, where it it seems like what they are being exposed to is physically impossible, but yet at the same time self-validating it seems right. true like that they really are figuring something out of course the challenge is to say something in in concrete terms after the experience that where you could um you know verify that in any way and i i'm not familiar of any examples of that well there's a there's a sense in which i suppose the experience is like um you uh you're you're uh a limited cognitive creature that knows very little about the world and here's a chance to communicate with much wiser entities that in a way that you can't possibly understand are trying to give you hints of deeper truths All right and so there's that kind of sense that you you can take something back but you can't where uh our cognition is not capable to fully grasp the truth We'll just get, get a kind of sense of it, and somehow that process is mind expanding. That there's a greater truth out there, right? That, that seems like what from, from the people I've heard talk about. That's that seems to be what uh, it is, and that's so fascinating that there's um, 
there's fundamentally to this whole thing is a communication between an entity that is other than yourself, entities. So it's not just like a visual experience, like uh, like you're like floating through the world, is there's other beings there, which right. is kind of, I don't know. I don't know what to sort of, uh, from a person who likes Freud and Carl Jung, I don't know what to think about that. That being, of course, from one perspective, is just you looking in the mirror. But it could also be, from another perspective, like actually talking to other beings. <laughs> yeah, and I, you mentioned Jung, and I, I think that's, he's particularly interesting, and it kind of points to something I was you know, thinking about saying, is that that I think what might be going on natural from a naturalistic perspective, um, so regardless, you know, whether or not there are, you know, it doesn't depend on autonomous entities out there, what might be happening is that just the associative net, the the the, the level of of learning, the the comprehension might be so beyond what someone is is used to that the only way for the nervous system for for the for the aware sense of self to to orient towards it is all by metaphor and so i do think you know I, when we get into these realms I, as 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 a strong empiricist i i think we always got to be careful and be mm -hmm. as grounded as possible but i'm also willing to speculate and, and, and sort of cast the nets wide with, with caveat. But, you know, I think of things like archetypes and, you know, you know, it's plausible that there are certain stories, there are certain, you know, we've gone through, you know, millions of years of evolution. It may be that we have certain um, characters and stories that are sort of, that our central nervous system are, are, is sort of wired to tend to. <laughs> yeah, those stories, are, we carry those stories in us. Right, and this and, unlocks them in a, in a certain kind of way. And we think about stories, like our sense of self is basically narrative self is a story, and we think about the, the world of stories. This is why metaphors are always more powerful than, um, you know, sort of laying out all the details all the time. You know, speaking in parables. It's like if you really get so, you know, this is why. As much as I hate it, you know, if you're, you're presenting to Congress or something, and you have all the the best data in the world. Yeah. It's not as powerful as that one anecdote as, yes. as, as the mom dying of cancer that had the psilocybin session and it transformed her life. Yes. You know, that's a story that's meaningful. And so when this kind of unimaginable kind of change in, in, in experience happens with a DMT um, ingestion, it, these stories of entities, they might, they might be that, you know, stories that are constructed that is the, the closest, which is not to say the stories aren't real. I mean, I think we're getting to layers where it, what it is doesn't real, really, man. right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's the closest we can come to making sense out of it. Because I do think what we do know about these psychedelics, one of the levels beyond the receptor is that the brain is communicating it with itself in a massively different way. There's massive communication with areas that don't normally communicate. And so it, I think that comes with both, it's casting the nets wide. I think it, that comes with the insights and, and helpful novel ways of thinking. I do think it comes with false positives, you know, that could be some of the delusion. Um, and so, you know, when you're so far out there, like with the DMT experience, like maybe alien is the the best way that the mind can wrap some arms around that. So uh, 
I don't know how much you're familiar with Joe Rogan, but he, he does bring up DMT quite a bit. It's, it's almost a meme. Uh, it is a right. meme. Have you ever, uh, what is it? Have you ever tried DMT? <laughs> Uh, I mean, he. I think he talks about this experience of um, having met other entities, um, and uh, they were mocking him. I think, if I remember the experience correctly, like laughing at him and saying "f you, f you" or something mm -hmm. like that. I may be misremembering this, but but there's a general mockery, and uh, the the what he learned from that experience is that he shouldn't take himself too seriously. So it's the dissolution of the ego and so on. Like, what do you think about uh, that experience? And maybe if you have more general things about uh, Joe's infatuation with DMT, and if DMT has that important role to play in um, popular culture in general. I'm definitely familiar with it. I remember telling you offline that when I first, the first time I, I learned who Joe Rogan was, it's probably 15 years ago, and I came upon a clip and I realized, there's another person in the world who's into both DMT and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And I think both those worlds have grown yeah. dramatically since, and it's probably not such a special club these days. So he definitely, uh, you know, got onto my radar screen quickly. You you were into both before it was cool. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, this is all relative because there's people that were, you know, before the late yes. 90s and early 2000s who were into it to say, you know, you're a Johnny come lately. But, but yeah, yeah, compared to where we're at now. But yet... One of the things I always found fascinating by by Joe's you know um, telling of his experience experiences, I think, is that they resemble very much Terence McKenna's experiences with DMT, and, and Joe has talked very much about Terence McKenna and his experiences. If I had to guess, I would guess that probably just having heard Terence McKenna talk about his experiences, that Joe's that that influenced. The coloring yeah, it gives of Joe's you the experience. To, it's funny. It's funny how that works. Because I mean, that's why McKenna has an, I mean, poets and uh, great orders give us the words to then like start to describe our experiences because our words are limited. Our language is limited. And it's always nice to get some kind of nice poetry into the mix to allow us to put words to it. Right. And yeah. he, But I also see some elements that 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 seem to relate to Joe's psychology get just from what I've seen of him, you yeah, know, from yes. hours of of watching him on his podcast is that, you know, he's a self-critical guy. Yes. And I think with always his positive bent, I'm always struck being a, a behavioral pharmacologist uh, and he no one else really says it about cannabis. I'll get back to the DMT thing about he likes the kind of the paranoid side of things. He's like, that's yeah. you radically examining yourself. Yeah. It's like, that's not just a bad thing. That's you need to like look hard at yourself yeah. and something's making you uncomfortable, like dig into that. And like, that's his, it's sort of along the lines of, of Goggins with exercise. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, like things, learning experiences aren't supposed to be easy. Yeah. Like take advantage of these uncomfortable experience. It's why we call in our research in a safe context with psychedelics, they're not, bad trips, they're challenging experiences. Nice, yes. So- with, Yeah, it's fascinating, just as a tiny tangent. It's always cool for me to hear him talk about um, marijuana, like weed, as the, the paranoia, the anxiety, whatever that you experience as actually the 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 fuel for the experience. Like I think he talks about uh, smoking 
weed when he's writing. That's inspiring to me because then you can't possibly have a bad experience. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of that. Like every experience is good. Um, if right, it's which like, is very Goggins. Yeah, it's very yeah, Goggins. Yeah, is it bad? Okay, all right, great, you know. Well, see, Goggins is one side of that. He wants it bad. Uh, like he wants the experience to be challenging always. But uh, I mean, like both are good. Uh, right. Like uh, the 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 few times of um, taking mushrooms, the experience was uh, like I, everything was beautiful. There's zero challenging uh, aspect to it. It was just like the world is beautiful, and it, it gave me this deep appreciation of the world. I would say so. Like that's amazing. But also ones that challenge you are also amazing. Like all the times I drink vodka, but. <laughs> uh, but that's another, uh, let's not, so back to DMT. Um, yeah, and Joe's treating, you know, and, uh, cannabis as a psychedelic, which is something yes. that I'd say, like not a lot of, a lot of people treat it more like Xanax yes. or, or like beer, Yes, you, you know, or vodka. Um, yeah. But he's really trying to delve into those, the minors, it's been called a minor psychedelic. So with DMT, you know, as you brought up, it's like the, the, the entity's mocking him. And it's like, you're not, I mean, this reminds me of him, you know, him describing his, like, you know, writing his, or uh, just, just his entire method of, of, of comedy. It's like, watch the tape of yourself, mm -hmm. you know, don't just ignore it. Like, that's where I screwed up. That's where I need to do better. This like sort of radical self-examination, which I think our society is kind of getting away from. Cause like, you know, all the children win trophies type of yes. thing. You know, it's like, no, no. Don't go overboard, but like recognize when you've messed up. Yes. And so like that, that's a big part of the psychedelic experience. Like people come out sometimes saying, my God, I need to say sorry to my mom. Yeah. You know, like it's so obvious, like, or so, whatever, you know, interpersonal issue or like, my God, I don't, I'm not pulling enough weight around the house and helping my wife and, you know you know, these things that are just obvious to them, the, the self-criticism that can be a very positive thing if you act on it. You've mentioned addiction. Maybe we could take a little bit detour into a darker aspect of things, or not even darker, it's just an important aspect of things. What's the nature of addiction? You've mentioned some things within the big umbrella of psychedelics, maybe usually not addictive, but maybe MDMA, I think you said, might have some addictive properties, but the the point is stuff outside of the psychedelics umbrella can often be highly addictive. So you've studied addiction from several angles, one of which is behavioral economics. What have you understood about addiction? What is addiction from the biological, physiological level to the psychological to whatever is the interesting way to talk about addiction? Yeah, and I... The lenses that I view addiction through very much are behavioral economic, but I also think they converge on, I think it's beautiful at the other end of the spectrum, sort of just a completely um, humanistic psychology perspective. Um, and I, it, it converges on what people come out of, you know, 12 step meetings talking about. Can you, uh, can you say what is behavioral economics and what is humanistic psychology? Uh, and like, what do you mean by that? And more, more importantly, behavioral economics lens. What is that? Yeah, so behavioral economics, my definition of it is the application of economic principles, mostly microeconomic principles. So understanding the, the behavior of, of, of individual agents um, surrounding, you know, commodities in, in the marketplace 
applying you know, microeconomic types of analyses um, to non-economic behavior. Mm-hmm. So basically, at one point, uh, like psychologists figured out that there's this whole other discipline that's been studying behavior, it just happened to be all focused on monetary behavior, spending and saving money, et cetera. But it comes with all of these like principles that can be wildly and, and, and fruitfully applied to understanding behavior. So, so for example, I've studied things like um, demand curve analysis of drug consumption. So I look at, um, for example, the, the tobacco, cigarettes, and nicotine products through the lens of, 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 of demand curves. And in other words, at different prices, if, you, if there's different work requirements mm-hmm. for um, being able to smoke cigarettes, sort of modeling price – Within that price data, there is some indication of addiction, how much you, the habits that you form around these particular uh, drugs. Yeah, it's, it's one one important dimension. So I think a particularly important one there is elasticity or inelasticity, you know, um, two ends of the spectrum. So that's the the price sensitivity. So, so f- for example, you could have something that's pretty price um, uh, inelastic, like like gasoline. So the price of gas at times can keep going up and Americans are just going to pretty much, you know, buy the same amount of gas or maybe, you know, the, the price of, of gas doubles, but their consumption only decreases by 10%. So it's mm-hmm. a, a sub proportional reduction. So that's a, an inelastic and, and, and that changes, like you push the price up high enough. I mean, if it was a hundred dollars right. a gallon, it would eventually turn, the curve would turn um, and, and, and go downward more, more drastically and it would be elastic. But you can apply that to someone, you know, someone who a regular cigarette smoker, who um, who who is working for cigarette puffs, who has who's gone six hours without smoking, and you're asking questions like, you know, how many times are they willing to pull this knob in the lab during this three hour session? I do a lot of work like this in order to earn a cigarette puff. How does the how does the content of nicotine in that affect it? How's the availability of of nicotine replacement products like nicotine gum or e-cigarettes? affect those those decisions so you can it's a certain lens of it's sort of a way to take the kind of the classic behavioral psychology definition of reinforcement mm-hmm. and which is just basically reward you know how much is this a good thing and it kind of breaks that apart into a, a multi-dimensional um space so it's not just the ideas reward or reinforcement is not unidimensional so for example you can unpack that with demand curves at a cheap price, you might prefer one good to another. You know, so the classic example is luxury versus necessity. So diamonds versus toilet paper. Mm-hmm. So at, at those cheap prices, you can look at something called intensity of demand. You know, if it was basically as cheap as possible or essentially zero, how much would you buy of this good? But then you keep jacking up the price and you'll see. So you know, diamonds will look like the better reward at that at that low price sort of intensity of demand side of things. But as you keep jacking up the price, you got to have some toilet paper. Yes. And okay, we can get into the whole like bidet thing, but forget that, you know, like, uh, <laughs> yeah. I know Joe's been pushing that too. <laughs> but, but, you know, you're going to, you're going to hang on and keep buying the toilet paper to a greater degree than you will the diamonds. Yes. So you'll see a crossing of demand curves. Yeah. So what's the better reinforcer? What's the better reward? Depends on your price, you know? Yes. And so that's one, that's an example of one way to, and that uh, uh, of look at addiction. So specifically drug consumption, which is, isn't all of addiction, but it's like in order for something to be addictive, it has to be a, a reward and it has to compete 
with other rewards in in your life and and one of the two main aspects of addiction in my in my view and this doesn't map onto how the you know the DSM the psych, psychiatry bible defines addiction which i think is largely bunk you know but there's some value to have some common description but it's you know how rewarding is it from this multi-dimensional lens and how, specifically how does it how does that rewarding value compete with other rewards, other consequences in your life. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's it's not a problem if if the use of that substance is rewarding, you know, okay, yeah, you like to have a couple beers every once in a while. It's like not a problem. I mean, um, but then you have the alcoholic who is drinking so much that they they're, they're, it tanks their career, it it ruins their marriage. It's in competition with these pro-social aspects to their life. It's all about comparing to the other choices you're making, the other activities in your life, and if it uh, you evaluate it as a much higher reward uh, than anything else that becomes an addiction. Right, right. And so it's not just the rewarding value, but it's the relative rewarding value. And in the other major aspect, again from ac- behavioral economics, that the, the the thing that makes addiction is something called delayed discounting. Um, so in, in economics, sometimes it's called time preference. It's, this is the, it's what compound interest rates are based upon. It's the idea that delaying a, a good, access to a good or a reward um, comes with a certain decrement to its value. So we'd all rather have things now than later. Um, and we can study this at the individual level of, you know, would you rather have $9 today or, or, or $10 tomorrow. Um, and you get, when you do that, you get huge differences between addicted populations and non-addicted, not just heroin and cocaine, but like just cigarette smokers, like normal everyday cigarette smokers. And even when you look at something like, you know, monetary rewards. And, and so you can go into the rabbit hole with with this delay discounting model. So it's not only those huge differences that that seem to have a face valid aspect to it, like the cigarette smoker is choosing this thing that's rewarding today, but I know it comes with increased risk of having these horrible consequences down the line. So it's this competition between what's good for me now and what's good for me later. Mm-hmm. And the other aspect about delayed discounting is that if you quantitatively map out that that discounting curve over time, so you don't just do the, you know, uh, you know, how much, you know, that $10 tomorrow, how much is it to you, worth to you today? So you can say, what about nine? What about eight? What about $7? And you can titrate it to find that indifference point. And so we can say, aha, $6, um, you know, $10 tomorrow is worth $6 to you uh, t- today. So it's by the one day, it's decreased by 40%. We can do that also at one week and one month and one year and mm-hmm. 10 years and map out that curve, get a shape of that curve. And one of the fascinating things about this is that whether you're talking about pigeons making these types of choices between a little bit of food now or a little bit of food a minute from now, or rats, or every like dozens of species of animals tested, including humans, the tendency is pretty consistently that we, we discount hyperbolically rather than exponentially. And what exponentially means is that every unit of time is associated with the same proportional reduction. Every unit of delay is is associated with the same causes the same proportional reduction in value. Mm-hmm. And that's the way the compound interest rate, you know, 
works, you know, you know, that there's, you know, compound every day, you know, you get this sort of uh, out of whatever values in there at the beginning of that day, you get this, you know, um, we'll give you this amount of extra money to compensate you for that delay. Mm -hmm. But then the way that all animals tend to function is of this very different way where the reductions, the initial that initial delay, so like one day's worth of delay, you see a much stronger um, discounting rate or reduction in value than you do over those. Um, so you see the super proportional, then it, it changes to to the, these lesser rates. And so the implication of that, I know I've gone like really into the weeds quantitatively, but what that means is that there's these preference reversals. When you have curves of that nature, the 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 decay that's hyperbolic, um, it, it maps onto this phenomenon we see um, both in terms of how people deal with future rewards, but also how how perception works. Um, when two things are far away, whether it's physical distance or whether in terms of perception or whether it's in terms of time, when you're really far away, the value, the subjective value for that further, that delayed reward is is larger. So, so for example, like let's say we're talking about 360, um, 364 days from now, you can get $9 or 365 days a year. Now you get $10 and you're like, Dude, it's like, it's a year, like no difference. Like I'll take, why not get one more dollar? Yeah. You bring that same exact set of choices closer. Nothing's changed other than the time to both rewards. And it's like, would you rather have $9 today or ten dollars tomorrow and plenty of people would say ah just about the south go ahead and take it today yeah so you see this preference reversal and so that is that's a model of of addiction in the sense that consistently with with true addiction i would argue you see this this competition between molar and molecular um utility um it's like inter it intrapersonal like within the person competing agents someone sometimes has control of the bus that wants to do what's in good for you in the short term and someone at other times is in control of driving the bus and they're they want to do what's good for you in the long term so you tell the you know you're, you're trying to quit and you see a doctor you see your you know 12-step therapist and say god i, I know this stuff is killing me like i'm really i'm on the path i'm like I'm done. And that's when you're kind of in their office or wherever you're not, you know, it's not around you. And then later on that day, your buddy says that, Hey man, I just scored. I've got it right here. Do you want it? And that reward is right in front of you. That's like bringing those two choices right in front of you. And it's like, hell yeah, I want to use. <laughs> yes. And then you can go through that cycle for like years of the person telling themselves, I want to quit. But then at other times that same person is saying, I don't want to you know, functionally, they're saying I don't want to because they're saying, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, give me some. So in the moment, it's very difficult to quit. And and this isn't just something, this is something that has, has huge clinical ramifications with addiction, but it's like all humans do it. Yes. Anyone who's had, hit the snooze alarm in the morning, like yeah. the night before they realize, oh, I got to get up extra early tomorrow. That's what's ultimately better for me. So I'm going to set the alarm for, you know, 5 a.m. Yes. Um, and, and they, they, it goes off at 5 a.m., you know, and then and so now those two consequences have come sooner and it's yeah. like, what the hell? And they hit the snooze alarm. And sometimes not just once, but then five minutes later and then five minutes later, you know, and so and it's why it's easier to exert exercise self-control 
at the grocery store compared to in your fridge. Like mm -hmm. if that snack is like 30 seconds away mm -hmm. in your fridge, you're going to more likely um, yield to temptation than if it is further away. So then to take a step back to something you brought up earlier, the inelasticity of pricing, uh, is it uh, from a perspective of the dealers, whether we're talking about cigarettes or maybe venturing slightly into the illegal realm, you know, of people who sell drugs illegally, they also have an economics to them that they set prices and all those kinds of things. Does addiction allow you to mess with the nature of pricing? Like, so I, I, I kind of assume that you meant that there's a correlation between things you're addicted to and the inelasticity of the price. So you can jack up the price. Is, is there something right. interesting to be said both for legal drugs and illegal drugs about the kind of price games you can play um, because the consumers of the product are addicted? Right. I mean, I, I think you just described it. Yeah, you can jack up the price and, you know, some people are going to drop off, but the people, you know, and it's not dichotomous because you could just consume less, but some people are going to consume less and the people that are most addicted are going to keep, you know, um, I mean, you see this, they're going to keep you know purchasing. So you see this with cigarettes. And so it, it's interesting when you interface this with policy, like in one respect, heavily taxing cigarettes is a good thing. We know it keeps you know, um, adolescents are particularly price sensitive. So you definitely, oh, people smoke less and especially kids smoke less when you keep cigarette prices high and you tax the hell out of them. Um, but one of the downsides you've got to balance and, and keep in mind is that you disproportionately have working class, um, poor people. <laughs> and then you get into a point where someone's spending, you know, a yeah. quarter of their paycheck on So they're going to smoke no matter what. And uh, basically because they're addicted, they're going to smoke no matter what. And you're just, yeah, you're you're taxing their existence. Right, so you're making it worse for, if, yeah. if they don't, if they are completely inelastic, you're actually making that person's life worse. Yeah. Because we know that that by by interfering with the, the amount of money they have, you're interfering with the other um, pro-social, the potential competitors to smoking, you know? Um, and we know that when someone's in more impoverished environments and they have less sort of non-drug alternatives, you know, the, the more likely they're going to stay addicted. So, you know. Is there data, this is interesting, uh, from a scientific perspective of those same kind of games in illegal drugs? Sort of, uh, because that's where most drug, I, I was, I mean, I don't know, maybe you can correct me, but it seems like most drugs are, are currently illegal. And so, they're, but there's still an economics to them, obviously. Right. That's the drug war and so on. Is there data on the setting of prices or like how good are the business people running the selling of drugs uh, that are illegal? Are they all the same kind of rules apply from a behavioral economics perspective? I think so. I mean, they're basically that whether they're crunching the numbers or not, they're basically sensitive to that demand curve and they're doing the, the, the same thing that businesses do in, in a legal market. And, you know, you want to sell as much of a, of a product to get as much money. Um, you're looking more at the total income. So if you jack the price a little bit, you're going to get some reduction in consumption, but it may be that the total amount of money that you rake in is going to be more 
then then it's going to overcompensate for that. So you're willing to take, okay, I'm going to lose 10% of my customers, but I'm getting more, you know, more than uh, enough to compensate from that, from the extra money from the people who still are buying. So I think they're more, you know, and especially when we get to the lower, I wouldn't be surprised if people are crunching those numbers and looking at demand curves, maybe at the, you know, at the really high levels of the, you know, up the chain with right. the cartels and whatnot. I don't know. I, that wouldn't surprise me at all, but I think it's probably, you know, more implicit at the, at the lower levels where, right. um, something you brought up drug policy. I will say that I, for, for years now, it's been this kind of, um, unquestioned goal, um, by, for example, the, the, the drug czar's office, um, in the U S to, to make the price of illegal drugs as high as possible without this kind of nuanced approach that, um, yeah, if you make you know, for some people, if you, you know, if you make the price so high, you're actually making things worse. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm all about reducing the problems associated with drugs and drug right. addictions. And part of that is the, are more direct consequences of those drugs themselves. Mm -hmm. And, but a whole lot is what you get from indirectly and, and, you know, sort of the, in, both for the individual and for society, society. So like making a poor person who doesn't have enough money for their kids, making them even poorer. So now you've made their their chil children's future worse because they're yeah. growing up in deeper poverty because you've essentially levied a tax onto this person who's heavily uh, addicted. Um, but then at the societal level, you know, so everything we know about the drug war in terms of the the heavy criminalization and filling up prisons and and reducing employment and educational opportunities, which in the big picture we know are the things that in a free market compete against some of the worst problems of addiction is actually having educational and employment opportunities. But when you get, give someone a felony, for example, mm -hmm. um, you're pretty much guaranteeing they're never going to go very high on the economic ladder. And so you're making drugs a better reward for that person's future. So this is a quick step into the policy realm. And I think for, for both you and I, I'm not sure you can correct me, but I'm more comfortable into studying the effects of drugs on the um, the human behavior and human psychology versus like policy. It seems like a whole giant mess, but you know, there's some libertarian um, candidates for president and just libertarian thinkers that had a nice thought experiment of possibly legalizing, I've spoken about possibly legalizing basically all drugs. In your intuition, do you think a world where all drugs are legal is a safer world or a less safe world for the users of those drugs? It really depends on what we mean by legalization. So this is one of my beefs with this, you know, how these things are talked about. I mean, we have very few completely laissez-faire, you know, legal drugs. So even Caffeine is one of the few examples. So for example, caffeine and tea and coffee is in that realm. Like there's no limits, no one's testing, there's no laws, regulation at any level of how much yeah. caffeine you're allowed to buy or how much in the price. But even like with this um Starbucks like nitro, there are rules with soda and with canned products, you can only put so much in there, yeah. Yeah. So there's a there's this is FDA regulated. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of weird because there's a limit to sodas that's not there for energy drinks and other things. So but you know, so even caffeine, it depends on what product we're talking about. You, like if you're like Nodos and other caffeine products over the counter, like you can't just put 800 milligrams in there. The pills are like one or 200 milligrams. And so it's FDA regulated as an over-the-counter drug. 
some of the most dangerous drugs in society. I would say arguably one of the most dangerous classes of drugs are the volatile anesthetics, huffing, people huffing gasoline and you know airplane glue, toluene, whatnot, um, severely damaging to the nervous system. Pretty much legal, but there's some regulation in the sense that there's a warning label, like it's legal to do it for not that it necessarily people they're busting people for this, mm-hmm. but you know it's against federal law to use this in a way other than intended type of thing. basically saying like yeah don't huff this you know um your paint thinner or whatnot at least keeps people from selling it for that like uh, no because yeah. they're gonna they're gonna go after that person they're not yes. gonna be able to find the 12 year old who's huffing yes. so anyway just as some extreme ex- examples at at the end and then you know even the the so-called illegal like schedule one drugs psilocybin we do plenty and um in terms of Schedule Two, which is ironically less restrictive than psilocybin, but methamphetamine and cocaine, I've done human research with. My research has been legal, so they're scheduled compounds, but they're not completely illegal. Like you can do research with them with the appropriate licenses and um, uh, yeah, approval. So there really is no such thing. And, and, and like alcohol, well, it's illegal if you're twelve years old or eighteen years old or twenty years old. And for anyone, it's illegal to to be drinking it while you're driving. So. There's always a nuance. There's rules, it's not right? dichotomy. And I actually should admit, it's been on my to-do list for a while to buy in Massachusetts some like edible or buy weed legally. I, um, yeah, haven't done that in Massachusetts. Put it this way, <laughs> uh, uh, it, and I, I wonder what that experience is like because I get, I think it's fully legal in Massachusetts, and, and so I wonder what legal drugs look like. To, to me, you know, I grew up with even weed being like, you know, not, it's like this forbidden thing, you know, not not forbidden, but it's illegal. You know, most people, of course, I never partook, but uh, most people I knew would uh, attain it illegally. And so that big switch that's been happening across the country, there's like federal stuff going on to make uh, marijuana legal federally. I, I'm, I'm half paying attention. There's some movement there. I yeah. mean, the House passed a bill that's not going to be passed by the by the Senate, but yeah, it, it's, but, but it's progress. It's, there's there's yeah. clearly a change. In, right, it's moving in a trend. So yeah. that's the example of a drug that uh, used to be illegal and is now becoming more and more and more legal. Um, so like, I wonder what like uh, cocaine being legal looks like. Right. What a society with cocaine being legal looks like the rules around it, the you know, the processes in which you can consume it in a safer way and be more educated about its consequences, be able to control dose and like purity much better, be able to get help for overdose, I don't know, all those kinds of things. Right. I it does in a utopian sense feel like legalizing drugs at least should be talked about and considered versus uh, keeping them in the dark. I but, agree. But yeah, so that in your sense, it's possible that in 50 years uh, we legalize all drugs and uh, it makes for a better world. The way I like to talk about it is that I would say that we it's possible and it would probably be a good thing if we regulate all drugs. How would you regulate uh, like cocaine, for example? Is there is there ideas there? So, yeah, and you were already, you know, going, you know, where I was going with that kind of first I described how there's always a new one. And even like the, the cannabis in Massachusetts, federally illegal. So, for example, if I was like, and I 
uh, you know, uh, colleagues that do cannabis research where they get people high in the lab. Like you're a federal funded researcher with NIH funds. You can't get that that stuff from the dispensary because oh, you're breaking a federal law, even though the feds don't have the resources to go after. They don't want the controversy at this point to go after the individual users or even the the sellers in those legal states. So there's always this nuance, but it's it's about right the right regulation. So I think we already know enough that for example, like I think safe injection sites for hard drugs um, makes a lot of sense. Like I wouldn't want um, heroin and cocaine at the convenience stores. And I don't think maybe there's some extreme libertarians that want that. I think even the folks that identify as libertarians, probably most of them don't. Well, I don't know. Like not all of them want that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, you know, that as a form of regulation, like, look, if you're using these hard drugs on a, on a regular basis, you're putting yourself at risk for lethal overdose. You're putting yourself at risk for catching um, HIV and and hepatitis. Um, if you're going to do it, if you're doing it anyway, come to this place where at least you're not like, you know, like pulling the the, the water out of like, you know, the puddle on the side of the street. Yeah, so it's Just, done by professionals and those professionals are able to educate you also. So like a 7-Eleven clerk may not be both capable of, of helping you to uh, to inject the drug properly, but also won't be equipped to educate you at but the negative consequences, all those kinds of things. That's a huge part of it, the education. But then I I think with the opioids, like the the big part of it is just like with naloxone, which is an antagonist, it goes into the um, the, the receptor. It's called Narcan. That's the trade name, but it's what they revive people on an opioid overdose. That's almost completely effective. Like if there's a medical professional there and someone's ODing on an opioid, they're virtually guaranteed to live. Like that's remarkable that if 100% at the opioid crisis, you know, if all of those people right now that are dying were doing that in the presence of a medical professional, like even to, like a nurse with Narcan, there'd be basic almost no deaths. There's always some exceptions, but, you know, almost no deaths. Like that's staggering to me. So the idea that people are mm -hmm. doing this you know, that we could have that level of positive effect without encouraging the drug. And this is where like you get into this like terrain of like sending the wrong message. And it's like, no, you can do that. You can say like, we're not encouraging this. In fact, probably a, one of the greatest advertisements for not getting hooked on heroin is like visiting a methadone clinic, visiting a safe injection site. Like, like this is not <laughs> like an advertisement for getting hooked on this drug, but knowing that we can save people. Now you have a landscape here because a lot of times it's just like supervised injection, but you bring your own stuff, you know, you bring your mm. own heroin, which could still be, you know, dirty and, and, and filled with fentanyl and fentanyl derivatives, which because of the incredible potency and the more difficulty measuring it, it's and some differences at the receptor. Like you may be more likely, you are more likely on average to lethally overdose on it, you know? So you, you could the, the the level that's been more explored in Switzerland is, is uh in some places is is you actually provide the drug itself and you supervise the injection. So I don't. Do you see, like that idea? Yeah, I the yeah. public health data are completely on the side of there, there's really no credible evidence to this. If we allow that, we're sending the wrong message, and everyone's going to. I mean, I'm not showing up. Like, you know, and it's different by drug. Like, yeah, you, you legalize, you set up cannabis shops and some people are going to say, it's legal. I'm going to go there. I don't yeah. think a whole lot of people are going to go to one of these places and say, I'm going to shoot up heroin for the first time because, and even if like, you know, it's a country of 300 million people. Like, even if someone does that, you have to compare this to the everyday people are dying from 
opioid yes. overdoses. Like people's kids, people's uncles, people's like, these are real lives that are being shattered. So you just look at that. And then the other thing, and I know this from having done residential, even like non-treatment research where we just have a cocaine user or something, stay on our inpatient ward for a month and you really get to know them. And sometimes you see, like oftentimes that's the first time this person has had a discussion with a medical professional, any type of professional in their entire life around their drug use. Yeah. Even if they're not looking to quit. And it's like, I, I, you know, you could imagine that in, in these safe injection settings where it's like, it might be a year into treatment and they're like, you know, doc, I know you're not the cops. Like, you really care for me. Like, yeah. I think I'm ready to try that methadone thing. I think yeah. I'm really, I Just think I want to be done. a conversation about it, yeah. Yeah, they get to trust the people and and realize that they're they're there because they truly, like, they have a compassion, a love for, for, for this community, like, as human beings, and they don't want people to die. And you get real human connections. And that, and again, like those are the conditions where people are going to ultimately seek treatment. And not everyone always will, but you're go- you're going to get that. And then you're, you know, you're going to get people like looking into treatment options. Sometimes, you know, maybe it's years into to the treatment. So it's like, there's just all of these indirect benefits that I think at that level, I don't know if you'd call that legalizing, you know, I think mm-hmm. again, at re- least well-regulated. Right. Whatever you know, that word is. Yeah, well-regulated, but uh, out in the open. Right, minimizing as many harms as we can um, while not encouraging. I mean, we don't encourage people to drink all the, I mean, people die every year from caffeine overdose. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and there's different ways to like, you know, just by allowing something doesn't mean we're sending the message that, you know, by saying we're not going to give you a felony, which is actually often the 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 the, the the, the penalty for for psychedelics. I just actually testified for the Judiciary Committee, the the Senate, uh, the Assembly in in New Jersey, and um, j- just to move psilocybin from a felony to misdemeanor. They use different language in New Jersey. It's weird, but like the equivalent of felony and misdemeanor, and that was like two people didn't vote for that on the on this committee wow. because it was might one of them said it might be sending the wrong message, and it's like a felony. I mean, there's real harms. Like that's the scarlet letter the rest of your life. You're stuck at the lower ends of the employment ladder. You're not going to get, you know, loans for education, all of this. Maybe because of a stupid mistake you made once as a 19-year-old. Yeah. Doing something that like, you know, a presidential candidate could have done and admitted to and had no problem, you know? Yeah. What drug is the most addictive, the most dangerous in your view? Not maybe... like not technically like specifically which drug but more like in our society today what is a highly problematic drug we talked about psychedelics not being that addictive on the other flip side of that you mentioned cocaine is that is that the top one is there something else that's a concern to you it depends and you've already alluded to this nuance it depends on how you define it if we're talking about on the ground today yes in you know uh, modern society, I'd 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 say nicotine, tobacco. Oh, interesting. Um, I mean, in terms of mortality, it kills it kills far more than any other drug known to humankind. Four times more than alcohol, like a half million deaths in the U.S. every year, and about five to six million worldwide due to tobacco. Um, that's four times more in the U.S. than alcohol. And if you graph all of the the drugs, legal and illegal, like, you know, um, put all of the illegal drugs in like one category on that figure and you put alcohol and tobacco on that figure, the, all the illegal drugs combined 
barely they're a bare barely visible blip to this incredible <laughs> like it's there's no even all of the opioid epidemic rolled up along with cocaine and everything else the meth barely shows up compared to tobacco that's one of those uncomfortable truths <laughs> that's that i don't know what to do with it's like uh where everybody's freaking out about coronavirus right <laughs> <laughs> and nobody's relative. Freak- it's, it's all relative. If you look at the relative thing, it's like, well, why aren't we freaking out about uh, cigarettes? Which, which we are increasingly so over the historically speaking, right? Right. It's uh, like terrorism versus swimming pools. I remember right. that being back in the after the war on terror started. Yeah. It's like, yeah, there's not even comparison. Okay, so you know that's a little sobering truth there. Because I was thinking like cocaine, I was thinking about all these hard drugs, but the reality is relatively nicotine is the is the big one. And you didn't ask about mortality or, or deaths. You asked yeah. about um, addiction, but that's that really is hard to hard to evaluate. It gets into those nuances I spoke of before about there's not a unidimensional way to measure reinforcement. It kind of depends on the situation and, and and what measure we're we're looking at. But you know, more people have access to tobacco. And I'm not I'm not re- advocating that we make it an illegal drug. I think that would was a hor- would be a horrible mistake. Although there is a very credible push to to um, mandate the reduction of nicotine mm. in cigarettes, which I have most scientists that study it are for it. I think there's some real dangers there because I see that in the broader history of drug use. It's like when has drug prohibition worked broadly speaking, and and it's it's. Uh, to me, that would that that path would only make sense in very good conjunction with e-cigarettes, which once they're fully regulated, can be a safer, not safe, but much safer alternative. And if we don't, if we tax the hell out of e-cigarettes and ban every attractive feature like like flavors and everything, then that's gonna push people to a, a black market if they can't get the real thing from real cigarettes. Like some people will just quit straight out. But I think what the regulators and what a lot of scientists that study tobacco, like myself, um, it's a big part still of what I study. Um, they're not used to thinking about the like tobacco really as a, as a drug, largely speaking, in terms of, you know, for example, the history of prohibition. And I think of like we already know there's an illicit market, a black market for tobacco to get around, um, you know, taxes. I mean, and for selling even loose cigarettes, that's what initially caused in Staten Island, the police to approach, uh, was it Eric Garland who was selling loose cigarettes and he got choked out. I mean, the thing that caused that police contact was he was selling, well, I think reported to sell individual cigarettes for like, you know, you could sell them for quarter. It happens in Baltimore. And it's like, that's technically illegal. But, you know, are you not going to have massive boats of, you know, supplies coming over from China and elsewhere of real deal cigarettes if you ban you know the sale of, of nicotine like it's, it's obviously going to happen and you have to weigh that against you know you're going to create a black market to yeah. one size or another and your intuition that really hasn't worked throughout the history when we've tried it right but i see a, a potential path forward but only if it's well it's if it's done in conjunction with e-cigarettes if there's a clear but, alternative that's a positive alternative that you it kind of stares the population the, right uh, uh, towards an alternative, yeah. The, the difference here, the the unique thing that could be taken advantage of here is nicotine is by and large not what causes the harm. It's the the aromatic hydrocarbons. It's the 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 carcinogens and 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 tobacco. It's burning tobacco smoke. Mm. It's not the nicotine. So, um, 
that it's not like alcohol prohibition where like you, you know you, you couldn't create the, the adults the, the the near beer is not going to have the alcohol and so people aren't, like here you do have the possibility of giving a, a, a another medium the ability yes. to deliver the the drug which still aren't to a lot of people isn't preferred to the tobacco but nonetheless if, again if you overregulate those and make them less attractive like if you aren't thoughtful about the nicotine limits and thoughtful about whether you're allowing flavors and everything. And if you overtax them, you're actually de decreasing the ability to compete with the more dangerous um, products. So I, I feel that like there is a potential path forward, but I don't have a lot of confidence that that's going to be done in a, a thoughtful analytical yeah. way. And I'm afraid that it could decrease the increase of black market calls all of the harms. Like every other drug we're moving away from the heavy, from the prohibition model slowly, yeah. but the big barge ship is like making a, a very slow turn and like, okay, we really had to step back and question if we went with nicotine tobacco, are we moving into yeah, that direction? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, the, big it, picture. It doesn't quite make sense. You, uh, you've done a study on cocaine and sexual decision-making. Uh, can yeah, you explain? <laughs> Can you explain the findings? I mean, uh, uh, in a broad sense, how do you do a study that involves cocaine? And uh, the other, how do you do a study involving dis sexual decision making? And then how do you do a study that combines both? Yeah, sex and drugs too. I'm just missing the rock and roll. The rock it's and like roll. the two controversial. <laughs> rock and roll isn't very controversial anymore. Yeah. But yeah, so the cocaine, you know, lots of hoops to jump through. You got to have a lot of medical support. You got to be at a basically at an institution, a research unit like I'm at that has a long history um, and, and the ability to to do that. Um, uh, and, and you get ethics approval, get FDA approval, but it's possible. And whenever you're dealing with something like cocaine, you would never want to give that to a, a a not someone who hasn't already used cocaine and, and you want to make sure you're not giving it to someone who's an active user who wants to quit. So the idea is like, okay, if you're, if you're using this type of drug anyway, and you're, we're really sure you're not looking to quit. Hey, use a, use a couple of times in the lab with us so we can at least learn something. Um, and, and part of what we learn is maybe to help people not use and reduce the harms of, of, of cocaine. So there's hoops to jump through. With the sexual um, decision-making I looked at, the main thing I looked at was this model of I applied delayed discounting to what we talked about earlier, the now versus later, that kind of decision-making that goes along with addiction. I applied that to condom use decisions, um, and, and I've done – probably published about 20 or so papers with this and different drugs and – and uh, so the the primary metric is whether you do or don't use a condom. That's the right. All hypothetical. And so this is using hypothetical decision making. But I've published oh, okay. um, some studies looking at um, showing a tight correspondence to self reported um, in correlational studies to self reported behavior. So this um, is like so. <laughs> like, how do you did you do a questionnaire kind of thing? Right. So it's a it's. Not quite a questionnaire, but but it's a it's it's a it's a behavioral task re requiring them to to respond to. So you, you show pictures of a bunch of individuals, and it's it's kind of like one of these fun behavioral. Like a lot of them, you get like yeah. numbers of boring, but it's like okay, hot or not, like which of these sixty people would yeah. you have a one night stand with? Men, women, so pick whatever you like. Yeah, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, whatever you're into. It's all variety there. 
out of that group, you, you pick some subsets of people. Who do you think is the you know the one you most want to have sex with the least? Who you think is most likely to have an STI or at least likely a sexually transmitted disease by STI? Mm-hmm. And then you could do certain decision making questions. So what I've done is asked, say this person you read a vignette, this person wants to have sex with you now, you've met them, you get along. Um, casual sex scenario, like a one night stand. Would, a condom's available. Just rate your likelihood from one to 100 on a, this kind of scale. Of, would you use it? Would you use a condom? But then you can change your your scenario to say, okay, now imagine you have to wait five minutes to use a condom. So the, the choice is now, instead of using condom versus not in terms of your likelihood scale, the, it, it now it ranges from um, have sex now without a condom versus on the other end of the scale is wait five minutes to have sex with a condom. So you rate your likelihood of where your behavior would be uh, along that continuum. And then you could say, okay, well, what about an hour? What about three hours? What about, you know, what about 24 Wait, hours? So I'm misunderstanding. Uh, now without a condom or five minutes later with a condom? Right. Isn't so, the, so what? <laughs> what's supposed to be the preference for the person? Like, is uh, like what? I, there's a lot of factors coming into play, right? There's right. A, uh, like, there's like, pleasure a personal preference and then there's also the right. safety those are two like are those competing objectives right and, and so we do get at that through some individual measures and and this task is more of a face valid task where there's a lot underneath the hood so for most people sex with the condom is the better reward but underneath the hood of that is just at the purely physical level, they'd rather have sex with without the condom. It's going to feel what better. By, what do you mean by reward? Like when they calculate their trajectory through life and try to optimize it, then sex with the condom is a good idea. Well, it's 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 really based on. I mean, yeah, yeah. Presumably, that's the case. That that okay. that that there's. That, that, but it's measured by like what would you, really that first question where there is no delay. Most people say they would be at the higher net scale. A lot of times, one hundred percent, they would say they would definitely use use a condom. A condom. Not everybody, and there we know that's the case. See, it's like that that some people don't like condoms. Some people say, yeah, I, I want to use a condom, but you know, a quarter of the time ended up not because I just get lost in the passion of the moment. So for the people, I mean, the only reason that people, so behaviorally speaking at least for a large number of people in many circumstances, condom use is a reinforcer just because people do it. Like, right. you know, why are they doing it? They're not because it makes the sex feel better, but because it makes that, it allows for at least the same general reward, even if actually, even if it feels a little bit not as good, Yeah, you know, with the condom, nonetheless, they get most of the benefit without the concurrent Oh my gosh, I, there's this risk of, of either unwanted pregnancy or getting HIV or more, way more likely than HIV, you know, herpes, you know, genital warts, et cetera, all the, all the lovely ones. Um, <laughs> and we've actually done research saying like where we gauge the probability of these individual ST, different STIs and it's like, yeah. what's the heavy hitter in terms of what people are using to judge, you know, to evaluate whether they're going to use a condom. So that's so, why the condom use is the delayed thing, five minutes or right. more. And then, uh, the, yeah, because which that's would the normally preferred. be the larger later reward, like the ten dollars versus the right. nine. It's like the ten dollars, which is counterintuitive if you just think about the physical pleasure. So that's a good. It, that's yeah. a good thing to measure. So condom use is a really good concrete, quanti- quantitative, quantifiable thing that you can use in a study, and then you can add a lot of different elements, like the presence of cocaine and so on. Yeah, you can get people loaded on like any number of drugs like cocaine, alcohol, and methamphetamine are the three that I've done and published on. And, and it's interesting that 
These are fun studies, man. <laughs> right. I love to get people loaded in in a safe context and like, but to really, it started like there was some I, early research with alcohol. I mean, the psychedelics are the most interesting, but yeah. it's like all of these drugs are all fascinating. The, the fact the, that all of these are keys that unlock a certain like psychological experience in, in the head. And so there was this work with alcohol that showed that it didn't affect those monetary delayed discounting decisions, you know, $9 now versus $10 later. And I'm like getting people drunk. And I, I thought to myself, are you telling me that, that, you know, getting someone that people being drunk is, does not cause people at least sometimes to make, to choose what's good for them in the short term at the expense of what's good yeah. for them to, uh, you know, in the long term. It's like, you know, bullshit, you know, like yeah. we see like, but w in what context does that happen? So that's what, that's something that inspired me to go in this direction of like, aha, risky sexual decisions is something they do when they're drunk. They don't necessarily go home and, and even though some people have gambling problems and, and mm -hmm. alcohol interacts with that, the most typical thing is not for people to go home, you know, log on and change their, their allocation in their retirement account or something right. like that, you know, like. But, it's, they're, but they're more likely risky sexual decisions. They're more likely to not wait the five minutes for the condom right. and instead go no condom now. Right, that's a big effect, and we see that. And, and interestingly, we do not see with those different drugs. We don't see an effect if we just look at that zero delay condition. In other words, the condoms right there waiting to be used. Would you? How likely are to use it? You don't see it. I mean, people people are by and large going to use the condom. Yeah. So, and that's the way most of this research outside of behavioral economics that's just looked at condom use decisions. Um, very little of which has ever actually administered the drugs, which is another unique aspect. But they usually just look at like assuming the condom is there. But this is more using behavioral economics to delve in and model something that, and I've done survey research on this, modeling what actually happens. Like you meet someone at a laundromat, like you weren't planning on like, you know, and it's like one thing leads to another, they live around the corner, you know, yeah. these things, you know, and like we did one, um, survey with with men who have sex with men and found that uh 25% of them 24% about a quarter reported in the last 6 months that they had unprotected anal intercourse which is the most risky in terms of uh sexually transmitted infection um uh in the last 6 months in a situation where they would have used a condom but they simply didn't use one just cuz they didn't have one on them mm -hmm. so this to me it's like if unless we delve into this and understand this these suboptimal conditions, we're not going to fully address the problem. There's plenty of people that say, yep, condom use is good. I use it a lot of the time. You know, it's like, where is that failing? And it's under these suboptimal conditions, which in Frank, if you think about it, it's like most of the case. Action is unfolding. Things are getting hot and heavy. Someone's like, do you got a condom? Eh, no. It's like, do they break the action? And take 10 minutes to go to the convenience store or whatever. Maybe everything's closed. Maybe they got to wait till tomorrow. And though there's something to be uh, studied there on the, that just seems like an unfortunate set of circumstances. Like what's the solution to that is, uh, I mean, um, what's the psychology that needs to be uh, like taken apart there? Because it just seems like that's the way of life. We don't expect the things that, Right to happen. Are we supposed to expect them better to be like be self aware enough about our calculations? Or you see the ten minute detour to a convenience store as a kind of thing that uh, we need to understand um, how we humans evaluate the cost of that. 
I think in terms of like how we use this to, to help people. Yes. Yeah. It's mostly on the environment side rather than on, on the on the individual side. Cool. Yeah. Although those those interact. So it's like, you know, in one sense, if you're especially if let's say you're going to be drinking or using another substance that that is associated with, you know, a stimulant, um, I mean, alcohol and stimulants go along with risky sex. You know, good to be aware that you might make decisions just to tell yourself you might make a decision that right. that is going to that you wouldn't have made in your sober state. And so. Hey, throwing a condom in the in the purse in the in, in yeah. the pocket, you know, might be you know a good idea. I think right. at the environmental level, just more condom. I mean, it highlights what we know about just making condoms widely yep. available. Something that I'd, I'd I'd like to do is like you know reinforcing condom use. You know, so um, you know, just getting people uh, used to carrying a condom everywhere they go because it's yep. such a, once it's in someone's habit. If they are say like a young single person and you know, it's, you know, they occasionally have unprotected sex, like training those people. Like, what if you got a text message, you know, once every few days saying, ah, if, if you show me a, send back a photo of a condom within a minute, you get a reward of, of $5. Yeah. You could shape that up like that. You, it's a process called contingency management. It's basically just straight up operant reinforcement. You could shape that up with no problem. And, and, um, I mean, those procedures of contingency management, giving people systematic rewards is like, for example, the most powerful way to 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 reduce cocaine use in addicted people, and um, uh, is what but but by, by, by saying if you show me a negative urine for cocaine, mm-hmm. I'm going to give you a monetary ah, reward, and like it. that has huge effects in terms of decreasing cocaine use. If that can be that powerful for something like stopping cocaine use, how powerful for that could that be for shaping up just carrying a condom? Because the primary, unlike cocaine use, here. We're not saying you can't have the the main reward. Like you can still have sex, and you can even have sex in the way that you tell yourself you'd you'd rather do it. You know, if the condom is available, you know. So, you know, like you're not. You know, it's relatively speaking, it's way easier than like not using cocaine. If you like using cocaine, it's just basically getting in the habit of carrying a condom. So that's just one idea of like. Well, there could be also the capitalistic solutions of like there could be a business opportunity for like a DoorDash for condoms. Oh like, yeah, <laughs> like deliver. <laughs> I like, thought about this with, it, within yeah. five minute delivery of a condom at any location, like Uber for condoms. <laughs> I've thought about it not with condoms, but a very similar line of thinking, a line that you're going into in terms of of Uber and people getting drunk when they intend they into the bar playing to have one or two. They yeah. end up having five or six, and it's like. Okay, yeah, you could take the 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 cab home, the Uber home. Yeah, but you've left your car there. It might get towed. You might like. There's also the hassle of just you know you want to wake up tomorrow with your hangover and forget about it and move yeah. on. Yeah, like, and I think a lot of people in their situation and they're like, screw it, I'm gonna take the risk. Just get it. You know, yeah. what if you had an Uber service where two, um, you know, you have uh, 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 two uh, some some a car come out with two drivers. And um, one of them, two sober drivers, obviously, and they and 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 the person they, the one driver drops off the other that then drives you home, oh, yeah. in their car, uh, in your car. Yeah. So that you can, I mean, I think a lot of people would pay fifty bucks. It's going to be yeah. more than a regular Uber. Yeah. But it's like it's going to be done. I got the money. I already I already spent sixty yeah. bucks at the bar tonight. Like. Just get the the damn thing done mm-hmm. tomorrow. I'm done with it. My car. I wake up. My car is in front of my house. Yeah. 
I think that would be, I think someone could, I'm not going to open that business. So like if anyone hears this and wants to take off with that, like I think it could help a lot of people. Uh, yeah, definitely. And, and Uber itself, I would say helped a huge amount of people. Just making it easy to make the decision of going home, uh, not driving yourself. I, I read about in Austin where they, I don't know where it's at now, but where they outlawed Uber for a while, you know, because of the whole taxi cab yeah. union type thing. And and how just, yeah, there were like hordes of drunk people that were uh, used to Uber that now didn't have a cheap alternative. Uh, so uh, just, uh, we, we didn't exactly mention, you've done a lot of studies on sexual decision-making with different drugs. Is there some interesting insights or findings on the difference between the different drugs? So you, I think you said uh, meth as well. Uh, so cocaine, is there some interesting characteristics about decision-making that these drugs alter versus like alcohol, all those yeah. kinds of things? I think, and there's much more to study with this, but I think the biggie there is that the stimulants, they create risky sex by really increasing the rewarding value of sex. Like if you talk to people that are real, especially that have are, are hooked on stimulants, one of the biggies is like, sex on coke or meth is like so much better than sex without and that's a big part of what why they have trouble quitting because it's so tied to their sex life so it's not um, that your decision making is broken it's just that you uh, well you allocate it's a, a different aspect yeah. of their decision yeah on the yeah. reward side i think on the alcohol it works more through disinhibition it's like alcohol is really good at 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 reducing the ability of a delayed punisher mm -hmm. to have an effect on current behavior in other words there's this bad thing that's going to happen tomorrow or a week from now or 20 years from now. Um, being drunk is a really good way. And you see this in like rats making decisions. You know, a high dose of alcohol makes someone less sensitive to those consequences. So I think that's the, the lever that's being hit with alcohol. And it's the more the just the increasing the rewarding value of sex um, by the psychostimulants on that side. We actually found that it and it was amazing because like hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent by NIH to study the connection between cocaine and HIV. Like we r ran the first study on my grant that like actually just gave people cocaine under double blind conditions and showed that like, yeah, when people are on coke, like their ratings of sexual desire, even though they're not in a sexual situation, yeah, you show them some pictures, but they're just saying they're horny. Like you get yeah. subjective ratings of like how, sex how much sexual desire are you feeling right now? People get horny when they're on, on stimulants. And um, Do you have a, a lot of people say, duh, if they really know these drugs. But that's a rigorous study that's in the lab that shows, like, there's a plot. Do you have, right, do you, uh, the dose effects of that, the time course of that. Yeah, there, it's not can just- Can you please tell me there's a paper with a plot that shows dose versus uh, uh, evaluation of, like, horniness? Yeah, we didn't say horniness. We said sexual arousal. Sexual. Yeah, basically, yeah. There's a plot. I'm going to find this plot. Right, I'll send it to you. There was okay. one headline from, uh, from uh, some publicity on the work that said, horny cocaine users don't use condoms or something like that. <laughs> like, you got to love like journalism. Like, I wouldn't have put it that way, but like, yeah, that's, that's I guess that's right what on. it finds. So you've published a bunch of studies on uh, psychedelics. Is there some especially favorite insightful findings from some of these that you could talk about? So maybe favorite studies or just something that pops to mind in terms of uh, both the goals and the, like the major insights gained and maybe the side little curiosities that you discovered along the way. Yeah. 
I think of the work with like using psilocybin to help people quit smoking. I mean, we've talked about smoking being such a, a, a serious addiction. And so that what inspired me to get into that was just kind of having like behavioral psychology is my primary lens, sort of a, a, a this sort of like, I mean, a kind of radical empirical basis of, I'm really interested in the mystical experience and the, all of these reports, very interested. And, and, but at the same time, I'm like, okay, let's, let's get down to some behavior change and something that we can record, like quantitatively verify um, biologically. So, so find all kinds of negative behaviors that people practice and see if we can turn those into positive or right, change those like behaviors. really change it, not just people saying, which again is interesting. I'm not dismissing it, but folks say, that say my life has turned around. I feel this has completely changed me. It's like, yep, that's good. All right, let's see if we can lever- harness that and test that mm-hmm. into something that it's, it's that's real behavior change. You, you know what I mean? It's quantifiable. It's like, okay, you've been smoking for 30 years. You know, like that's a real thing. Yeah. And you've tried a dozen times like seriously to quit and you haven't been able to long-term. Like, okay. And and if you quit, like we'll ask you and I'll believe you, but I don't trust everyone reading the paper to believe you. So we're going to have you, you pee in a cup and we'll test that. And we'll have you blow into this little machine that measures carbon monoxide and we'll test that. So multiple levels of biological verification. Nice. Like wow. now we're getting like, to me, that's where the rubber meets the road in terms of like therapeutics. It's like, can we really shift behavior? And since in, in so much as we talked about my other scientific work outside of psychedelics is about understanding addiction mm-hmm. and drug use. So it's like, you know, looking at addiction, it's a no brainer and, and smoking is just a great example. And so back to your question, like we've had really high success rates. I mean, it really, it rivals anything that's been published in the scientific literature. Um, the caveat is that, you know, that's based on our initial trial of only 15 people, but extremely high long-term success rates. Um, 80% at six months were fo- smoke-free. So can we uh, discuss the details? So first of all, which psychedelic are we talking about? And maybe can you talk about the 15 people and the, how the study ran and what you found? Yeah, yeah. So the, the drug we're using is psilocybin, and we're using um, a moderately high and high doses of, of psilocybin. And I should say this about most of our work. These are not kind of museum-level doses. In other words, nothing even big fans of psychedelics want to take and go to a go to a concert or go to the museum if someone's at Burning Man on this type of dose, like they're probably going to want to find their way back to their tent and zip up and hunker down for, you know, <laughs> not be around strangers. Yeah. And by the way, uh, the the delivery method, so psilocybin so is mushrooms, I guess. Uh, what's the usual? Is it edible? Is there some other way? Like how are people supposed to think about uh, the, the correct dosing of these things? Because I've heard that it's hard to dose correctly. Uh, that's, r- that's right. So in our studies, we use the, the pure compound psilocybin. So it's a single molecule, you know, a bunch of molecules. And we, and we uh, give them a capsule with that in it. Um, uh, and, and so it's just, you know, a little capsule they swallow. What people, when psilocybin is used outside of research, it's always in the context of mushrooms. Mm-hmm um because they're so easy to grow there's no market for synthetic psilocybin there's no reason for that to pop up um the 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 high dose that we use in research is 
30 milligrams body weight adjusted. So if you're a heavier person, it might be like 40 or even 50 milligrams. Um, we have some data that it, based on that data, we're actually moving into like getting away from the body weight adjusting of the dose and just giving an absolute dose. It seems like there's no justification for the body weight based dosing, but I, I digress. Um, generally 30, 40 milligrams, is, it's, it's a high dose. And based on average, even though, as you alluded to, there's variability, which gets people into some trouble yeah. um, in terms of mushrooms, like Psilocybe cubensis, which is the most common ver species in the illicit market in the U.S., um, this is about equivalent to five dried grams, which is right at about where, right where McKenna and others, they call it a, 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 a heroic dose. You know, this is not hanging out with your friends, going to the concert again. So this is a real deal dose, even to people that like really you know, just even to psychonauts. And even we've even had a number of studies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, people that, yeah, like, so that's a great or, or term. cosmonaut, you know, like psychonaut. for psychedelics. <laughs> yeah, going as far out as possible. But, but even for them, even for, even for those who've flown to space before. <laughs> right, right. They're like, holy shit, I didn't know the orbit would be that you know, yeah. <laughs> far out, you know, like, or I, I escaped the or orbit. I was in interplanetary space there <laughs> <You know? laughs> so these folks in the the 15 folks in the study they're not there's not a question of uh dose being too low to truly have an impact right right very out of hundreds of volunteers over the years we've only seen a couple of people where there was a mild effect of the of the 30 milligrams and it, who knows that person's their serotonin's they they might have lesser density of serotonin 2A receptors or something. We don't know. But it's extremely rare. For most people, this is like like something interesting is going to happen, put it that Speaking way. Speaking of Joe Rogan, I think that Jamie, his producer, is uh, immune to uh, uh, psychedelics. So maybe yeah, he's, a, he's a good recruit for the study to, to test. So that's interesting. Now, I'm not, the caveat is I'm not encouraging anything illicit, but just theoretically, my first question as a ph behavioral pharmacologist is like, you know, increase the dose. Increase like, the he, you know, like really, let's see the immune. full dose. I'm not <laughs> yeah. telling him, Jamie, to do that, but like, okay, like, you know, you're taking the same amount that friends might be taking, but yeah. But he, he was also referring to the psychedelic effects of edible marijuana, which is, is there, is there uh, rules on uh, dosage for um, uh, like marijuana? Is there limits? Like what places where it's this is this all goes to, it probably is state by state, right? It is, but most they've gone that direction and, and states that didn't initially have these rules have not, now have them. Yeah. So it was like you'll get I think you know, five, ten milli I think ten five or ten milligrams of, of THC yeah. being a, a common and, and and like and this is an important thing, like where they've moved from not being allowed to say like have a whole candy bar and have each of the eight or ten squares on the candy bar being ten milligrams but it's like no the whole thing because like you know someone gets a candy bar they they're eating the freaking candy bar yeah and it's like if you unless you're a daily cannabis user if you if you take you know 100 milligrams it's like that's what could lead to a bad trip yeah for someone and it's like you know a lot of these people it's like oh you used to, used to smoke a little weed in college they might say they're visiting denver for a business trip and they're like why not let's give it a shot you know yeah. and they're like oh i don't want to smoke something because it's going to so i'm going to be safer with this edible yeah, <laughs> they like consume this massive you know yeah. but there's huge tolerance so a regular like for someone who's smoking weed every day they might take five milligrams and kind of hardly feel anything and they might not may not, they may really need something more like 30 40 50 milligrams to have a strong effect but yeah so that's They've evolved in terms of the rules about like, okay, 
what constitutes a dose, yes. you know, which is why you see less big candy bars and more, or if you're is, you're, if it is a whole candy bar, you're only getting a smaller dose, like 10 milligrams or yeah. Cause that's is where people get in trouble more often with edibles. Yeah. Uh, except Joey Diaz, which I've heard. This, uh, that's definitely somebody I want to talk to. Out of the crazy comedians, I want to talk to him. <laughs> anyway, uh, so yeah, fifteen. the study of the 15 and uh, the dose not being a question. So like, what was the recruitment based on? What was the, uh, like, how did the study get conducted? Yeah, so the recruitment, I really like this fact. It wasn't people that, you know, largely were, you know, we were honest about what we were studying, but for most people, it was they were in the category of like, you know, not particularly interested in psychedelics, but mm -hmm. more of like they want to quit smoking. They've tried everything but the kitchen sink. Yeah. And this sounds like the kitchen sink. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's like, well, it's Hopkins. So, yeah. you know, thinking oh, that sounds like it's safe enough. So, yeah. like, what the hell? Let's give it a shot. Like, most of them were, were in that category, which I really, you know, I, I appreciate because it's more of a, of a test, you yeah. know, of 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 yeah just like a better model of what if these are approved as medicines yeah. like what you're going to have the average participant you know um uh, be like and so the 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 therapy involves a, a good amount of of non psilocybin sessions so preparatory sessions like 8 hours of of getting to know the person like the two people who are going to be their guides or the person in the room with them during the experience um uh having these discussions with them where you're both kind of rapport building, just kind of discussing their life, getting to know them. Um, but then also telling them, preparing them about the, the, the psilocybin experience. Oh, it could be scary in this sense, but here's how to handle it. Trust, let go, be open. Um, and also during that preparation time, preparing them to quit smoking, using really standard bread and butter techniques that are, can all fall under the label typically of the cognitive behavioral therapy, just stuff like before you quit, we assign a target quit date ahead of time. You're not just quitting on the fly. Um, and, and that happens to be the target quit date in our study was the day that where they got the first psilocybin dose. But doing things like keeping a smoking diary, like, okay, during the three weeks until you quit, every time you smoke a cigarette, just like jot down what you're doing, what you're feeling, mm -hmm. what situation, that type of thing. And then having some discussion around that. And then going over the pluses and minuses in their life that smoking kind of comes with and being honest about the, this is what it does for me. This is why I like it. This is why I don't like it. Preparing for like, what if you, what if you do slip, how to handle it? Like don't dwell on guilt because that leads to more full on relapse, you know, just kind of treat it as a learning experience, that type of thing. Then you have the real, the session day where they come in, they, they, um, five minutes of questionnaires, but pretty much they jump into the, we, we touch base with them and they, we we give them the capsule. It's a serious setting, but you know, uh, a comfortable one. They're in a room that looks more like a living room than like a research lab. We measure their blood pressure, they experience, but kind of minimal, kind of medical vibe to it. And um, they lay down on a couch, and it's a, it's a purposefully an introspective experience. So they're laying on a couch during most of the uh, five to six hour experience, and they're wearing eye shades which has a better connotation as a name than blindfold, <laughs> but like, you know, so they're wearing eye shades, but that's, and, and, and they're wearing headphones through which music is played. Um, mostly classical, although we've done some variation of that. I have a paper that was recently accepted, kind of comparing it to more like gongs and, and, and mm. harmonic bowls and, and that type of thing, kind of like sound, you know, kind of. Um, yeah. You, you've, uh, you've also added this to the science and have a paper on 
the musical accompaniment to the psychedelic experience is fascinating. Right. And we found basically that the about the same effect, even by a trend, not significant, but a little bit better of an effect, both in terms of um, subjective experience and long-term, whether it helped people quit smoking, just a little tiny non-significant trend even favoring the 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 novel playlist with the the Tibetan singing bowls and and the gongs and all, didgeridoo and all of that and um so so anyway just saying okay we we can deviate a little bit from this like what goes back to the 1950s of this method of using classical music as part of this psychedelic therapy but they're listening to the music and they're not playing DJ in real time you know it's like you know they're they just be the baby you're not the decision maker for today go inward trust let go be open and pretty much the only interaction like that we're there for is to deal with any anxiety that comes up. So guide is kind of a misnomer in a sense. It's we're more of a safety net. And so like, tell us if you feel some butterflies that we can provide reassurance, a hold of their, their hand can be very powerful. I've had people tell me that that was like the thing that really just grounded them. Can you break apart? Trust, let go, be open. What, uh, what, so in a sense, how would you describe the experience, the uh, intellectual and the emotional approach that people are supposed to take to really let go into the experience? Yeah, so you know, trust is, trust the context, You know, trust the guides, trust the overall you know, institutional context. I see it as layers of like safety, even though it's yeah. everything I told you about the relative bodily safety of psilocybin. Nonetheless, we're still getting blood pressure throughout the session mm -hmm. just in case. We have a physician on hand who can respond just in case. Mm -hmm. We're literally across the street from the emergency department just in case, you know, all of that, you know. Privacy is another thing you've talked about, just trusting that you're, and whatever happens is just between you and, and the people in the study. Right, and hopefully they've really gotten that by that point deep into the study that like they realize where we take that seriously and everything else, you know? And so it's really kind of like a very special role you're playing as a, as a researcher or guide and, and hopefully they have your, your trust. And so, you know, and trust that they could be as emotional, everything from laughter to tears, like that's going to be welcomed. We're not judging them. It's like, a, it's a therapeutic relationship right. where, you know, this is a safe container. It's a safe yeah. space. Safe that space. has a lot of baggage to that term, but it truly <laughs> is. It's a safe yeah. space for that for this type of ex experience and to, to let go. So trust, let's see, let go. So that relates to the emotional, like you feel like crying, cry. You feel like laughing your ass off, laugh your ass off. You know, it's like all the things actually that sometimes it's more challenging with a recreate, someone has a large recreational use. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's harder for them because people in that context, and understandably so, it's more about holding your shit. Yeah. Someone's had a bunch of mushrooms at a party Maybe they don't want to go into the back room and start crying about this, these thoughts about the relationship mm -hmm. with their mother. And they don't want to be the drama queen or king that bring their friends down because their friends are having an experience too. And so they want to like compose, yeah. you know. And um, also just the appearance in social settings versus the, so like prioritizing how you appear to others versus the prioritizing the depth of the experience. And here in the study, you can prioritize the experience. Right. And it's all about like, you're the astronaut and we're, there's only one astronaut. Yeah. We're ground control. And I use this often with, um, That's good. I have a photo of the space shuttle on a plaque in my, in my office. And I kind of use, often use that as an example. And it's like, we're here for you. Like we're a team, but yeah. we have different roles. It's just like, yeah. you don't have to like 
compose yourself. Like you don't have to like be concerned about our safety. Like we're playing these roles today. And like, yeah, your job is to go as deep as possible or as far out, whatever your analogy is, like as possible. And and we're keeping you you safe. And so yeah, and you really the emotional side is a hard one, you, you know, because you really want people to like if they go into realms of subjectively of of despair and sorrow, you, like, yeah, like cry. You know, like it's okay, you know, and especially if someone's a, you know, more macho and you know, you you want this to be the place where they they can let go yeah. and 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 again, something that they wouldn't or shouldn't do if someone was to theoretically use it in a in a social setting and, and like and also these other things like even that you get in those so, social settings of like yeah you don't have to like worry about your wallet for yeah, being yeah. taken advantage or for especially for a woman sexually assaulted by some yeah. creep at a concert or something because they're in, you know they're laying down There's being like far a million out of the sources of anxiety that are external uh, versus internal so you can just focus on your own like right the, the in, beautiful thing that's going on in your mind and even the cops at that la layer, even yes, though it's extremely right. unlikely yep. for most people that cops yep. would come in and bust them right when, like even at that theoretical, like that yep. one in a billion chance, like that might be a real thing psychologically. Yep. In this context, we even got that covered. Yep. This is, we've got DEA approval. Yeah. <laughs> like you are, this is okay by yep. every level of society yep. that counts, you know, that yep. has the authority. So it's, so go deep, trust the, you know, trust the setting, trust yourself um, you know, let go and be open. So in the experience, and this is all subjective and by analogy, but like if there's a door, open it, go into it. If there's a, a stairwell, go down it or a stairway, go up it. If there's a monster in the mind's eye, you know, don't run, approach it, look it in the eye and say, you know, let's talk. Read it. <laughs> yeah what's up what are you doing here let's talk turkey you know <laughs> and i Goggins thought entered the chat okay <laughs> right but it really is that it that really is a heart of, a heart of it is this radical courage like yeah, it courage people are often struck by that coming out like this is heavy lifting this is hard work people come out of this exhausted and it's it can be extremely some people say it's the most difficult thing they've done in their life like choosing to let go on a moment a microsecond by microsecond mm -hmm. basis, everything in their inclination is to is to say stop. Sometimes stop this. I don't like this. I didn't know it was going to be like this. This is too much. And Terrence McKenna put it this way: It's like comparing to meditation and other techniques. It's like spending years push trying to press the accelerator to make something happen. High dose psychedelics is like you're speeding down the the mountain in a fully loaded semi truck, and you're you're charged with not slamming the brake. <laughs> it's like, you know, let it happen, you know, so it's very difficult and to engage, always, you know, go further into it and take that radical, you know, radical courage, you know, throughout. What do they say um, in self-report, if you can put general words to it, what is their experience like? What do they say it's like? Because these are many people, like you said, that haven't probably read much about psychedelics or they don't have like with Joe Rogan, um, like language or stories to put on it. So this is very raw self-report of experiences. Is uh, What do they say the experience is like? Yeah, and some more so than others because everyone has been exposed at some level or another, right. but some, some it is pretty superficial as you're, as you're saying. Um, 
one of the hallmarks of psychedelics is just their variability. So I'm more straight. It's like mm. not the mean, but the standard deviation right. is, so, yeah. is so wide that it's like, it could be like hellish experiences and, and you, you know, um, just absolutely beautiful and loving experiences, everything in between. And, and both of those, like those could be two minutes apart from each other. Yeah. And, and sometimes kind of at the same, at the same time concurrently. So, um, let's see, there's different ways to, there were some Jungian psychologists back in the sixties, um, masters in Houston that wrote a really good book, the varieties of psychedelic experience kind of, which is a play on varieties of religious experience by William James, mm -hmm. uh, that, that they described, a, a, this, a perceptual level. And so most people have that, you know, when, you know, whether they're looking at the room without the eye shades on or inside their, their mind's eye with the eye shades on colors, you know, um, sounds like this is, is a much richer, um, sensorium, mm -hmm. you know, so, which can be very interesting. And then at another level, a uh, master's in Houston called it the psychodynamic level. And I think you could think about it more broadly than that, you know, that's kind of Jungian, but, um, just the personal psychological levels, how I think of it, like, this is about your life. There's a whole life review. Oftentimes people have thoughts about their childhood, about their relationships, their their spouse or partner, um, their children, their parents, their family of origin, their current family. Like, you know, that stuff comes up a lot, including every, like, like the love, just people just like pouring with tears about like, like how much, like it hits them so hard how much they love people. Yeah. Like in a way that, you know, for people that like they'd love their family, but like it just hits them so hard that like yeah. how important this is yeah. and like the magnitude of that love and like what that means in their life. So that's, those are some of the most moving experiences to be present for is where people like it hits home, like what really matters in their life. And, and, and then you have this sort of what Masters in Houston called the archetypal realm which kind of, again is sort of Jungian with the focus on archetypes, which is interesting, but I think of that more generally as like symbolic level. Mm -hmm. So just really deep experiences where you have, you do have experiences that seem symbolic of, you know, very mm -hmm. much in like, you know, what we know about dreaming and what most people think about dreaming, like there's this randomness of things, but sometimes it's pretty clear in retrospect, oh, like this came up because this thing has been on my mind you know, recently. So it seems to be, there, there seems to be this symbolic level. And then they have this, the last level that they describe is the mystical integral level, which, and this is where there's lots of terms for it, but transcendental experiences, experiences of unity, mystical type effects we often you know, measure. Um, Europeans use a scale that will refer to oceanic boundlessness. This is all pretty <laughs> much the same thing. Yeah, This is like, at some sense, the deepest level of the very sense of self seems to be dissolved, minimized, or expanded such that the boundaries of the self go into, and here, I think some of this is just semantics, but whether the self is expanding such that there's no boundary between the self and the rest of the universe, or whether there's no sense of self, again, might be just semantics, but this radical shift or sense of loss of, of sense of self or self boundaries and that's like the most typically when people have that experience, they'll often report that as being the most remarkable thing. And this is what you, you don't typically get with MDMA, these deepest levels of the, the nature of reality itself, the subjectivity and objectivity, just like the, the, 
the seer and the seen become one and, and, and it's a process. And yeah. And they're able to bring that experience back uh, and be able to describe it. Yeah, but but one of the, to a degree, but one of the hallmarks going back to William James of describing a mystical experience is the ineffability. Mm. And so even though it's ineffable, you know, people try as far as they can to describe it. But when you get the real deal, they'll say, and even say that though they say a lot of helpful things to help you describe the landscape, they'll say, no matter what I say, I'm still not even coming anywhere close to what this was. Like the language is completely failing. And I like to joke that even though it's it's ineffable and we're researchers, so we try to F it up by asking <laughs> them to describe the experience. But, I love it. That's yeah. a good one. But uh, to bring it back a little bit, so for that particular study on uh, tobacco, what was the results? What was the conclusions in terms of the uh, impact of uh, psilocybin on their addiction? So in that pilot study, it was very, it was very small and it wasn't a, a randomized study, so it was limited. The only question we could really answer was, is this worthy enough of follow-up? Yes. And the a answer to that was absolutely, because <laughs> the success rates were so high, 80% biologically confirmed successful at six months. That held up to 60% biologically confirmed abstinent at two at an average of two and a half years, a very two long and a half follow years. Wow. Yeah. And so- I mean, the, the best that's been reported in the literature for smoking cessation is in the upper 50%. And that's with not one, but two medications for a couple of months, followed by regular cognitive behavioral therapy where you're coming in once a week or once every few weeks for an entire year. And and so- But, but this know, like is what- Very this, heavy. And This is just like what, a few uses of uh, psilocybin? So this was three doses of psilocybin three over doses. a total course, including preparation, everything, a 15-week period where there's mainly like, um, uh, for most part, one, one meeting a week, and then the three sessions are within that. And so it's, and we scaled that back in the more, the, the, the study we're doing right now, which I can tell you about, which is a randomized, um, controlled trial. Um, but, but it's, uh, the, yeah, the, the original, um, you know, pilot study was, you know, these 15 people, so given the like the positive signal from the first study telling us that it was a worthy pursuit, we hustled up some money to actually be able to afford a larger trial. So it's randomizing 80 people to to get either one psilocybin session when we've narrowed we we've scaled that down from three to, to one, mainly because we're doing fMRI neuroimaging before and after, and it made it more experimentally complex to have multiple sessions. Um, but one psilocybin session versus uh, the uh, nicotine patch using the the FDA approved label like standard use of the nicotine patch. So it's randomized. Forty people get randomized to psilocybin one session. Forty people get nicotine patch, and they all get the same cognitive behavioral therapy, sort of the standard talk therapy. And we've scaled it down somewhat so there's less uh, weekly meetings, but it's within the same ballpark. And right now we're still um uh uh, uh the study still ongoing. And in fact, we just recently started recruiting again. We paused for COVID. Now we're starting back up with some protections like masks and whatnot. But um, uh, right now for the 44 people who have gotten through the one-year follow-up, and so that includes 22 from each of the two groups, the success rates are extremely high. For the psilocybin group, it's 59% have been biologically confirmed as smoke-free at one year. 
after their quit date. Mm-hmm. And that compares to uh, 27% for the nicotine patch, which by the way is extremely good for the nicotine patch compared to previous research. So the results could change because it's ongoing, but we're mostly done and it's still looking extremely positive. So if anyone's interested, they have to be sort of be in commuting distance to the Baltimore area, but you know- To participate. Right, right, to participate. This is uh this is a good moment to bring up something. I think a lot of what you talked about is super interesting. And I think a lot of people listening to this, so now it's uh anywhere from three hundred to six hundred thousand people for just a regular podcast. I know a lot of them will be very interested in what you're saying and they're going to look you up. And they're going to find your email. And they're going to write you a long email about uh, some of the interesting things they found uh, in any of your papers. How should people contact you? What is the best way for that? Would you recommend? You're a super busy guy. You have a million things going on. What? How should people communicate with you? Thanks for bringing this up. This is a. I'm, I'm glad to get the opportunity to uh, address this. The, if someone's interested in, in participating in a study, yes. the best thing to do is go to the website. Uh, of uh, the study or of uh, uh, like, uh, yeah, which website? So we have all of our psilocybin studies. So everything we have is up in, on one website and then we link to the different study websites, but mm-hmm. hopkinspsychedelic.org. Mm-hmm. So everything we do, or if you don't remember that, just, you know, go to your favorite search engine and look up Johns Hopkins psychedelic and you're going to find one of the first hits is going to be our is this website and there's going to be links to the smoking study and all of our other studies if there's no link to it there we don't have a study on it now Mm -hmm. and if you're interested in psychedelic research more broadly you can look up you know like at another university that might be closer to you and there's a handful of them now across the country and and there's some in europe that that um have studies going on but you can at least in the u.s you can look at um, clinical trials Dot gov and and look up the term psilocybin and in fact optionally people even in Europe can register their trial on there so that's a good way to find studies but for our research rather than emailing me like a more efficient way is to go straight and you can do that first the first phase of screening there's some questions online and then someone will get back in touch with you um, but I do already st- I, you know and I, I you know I expect it's like going to increase, but I'm already at the level where my simple limited mind and limited capacity is already, I I, I sometimes fail to get back to emails. Yep. I mean, I'm trying to le- respond to my colleagues, my mentees, all these things, my responsibilities. And as many of the people just inquiring about, I want to go to graduate school. I'm interested in this. I had this, I have a daughter that took a psychedelic and she's having trouble. And it's like, so, I, I try to respond to those, but sometimes I just simply can't get to all of those it, already. To, to be honest, like from my perspective, uh, it's been quite heartbreaking because I basically don't respond to any emails anymore. And um, especially sort of, you mentioned mentees and so on, like outside of that circle, it's heartbreaking to me how many brilliant people there are, thoughtful people, like loving people, and they write long emails that are really, I, uh, by the way, I do read them very often. It's just that I don't, the response is then you're starting a conversation. And there's the heartbreaking aspect is you only have so many hours in the day to have deep, meaningful conversations with human beings on this earth. 
And so you have to select who they are. And usually it's your family, it's people like you're directly working with. And even I guarantee you with this conversation, people will write uh, you long, really thoughtful uh, emails. Like there'll be brilliant people, faculty from all over, PhD students from all over. And it's uh, heartbreaking because you can't really get back to them. But you're saying like many of them, if you do respond, it's more like here, go to this website. If you're in for when you're interested into the study, right. it's just it makes sense to directly go to the site. If there's applications open, just apply for the study. Right, right, right. You know, you know, as a, as a, either a volunteer or if we're looking for, you know, somebody, um, you know, we're going to be, you know, posting, um, including on the Hopkins University like website, we're going to be posting if we're looking for a position. I am right now actually looking through, and and it's mainly been through email and contacts. But should I say it? I guess, because I think I'd rather cast my nets wide. But I'm looking for a postdoc right now. Oh, great. Um, so I've mentored postdocs for. I don't know, like a dozen years or so, and and more and more of their time is being spent on psychedelics. So someone's free to contact me. That's more of a, that's sort of so close to home. That's a personal, yeah. you know, that like emailing me about that. But I I come to appreciate more the the advice that folks like Tim Ferriss have of like I think it's him like five cents emails, you know, like you know. A, a subject that gets to the point that tells you yep. what it's about so that like you break through the signal to the noise. But I really appreciate what you're saying because part of the equation for me is like, I have a three-year-old and like my time on the ground, on the floor, playing blocks or cars with him mm -hmm. is, is part of that equation. And even if the day is ending and I know some of those emails are slipping by and I'll never get back to them. And I, ha I have, I'm struggling with it. I'm already, and I get what you're saying is like, I haven't seen anything yet if with the type of exposure that like, your so this, podcast. This gets will bring in exposure. And then I think in terms of postdocs, this is a really good podcast in the sense that there's a lot of uh, brilliant PhD students out there that are looking for postdocs from all over from MIT, probably from Hopkins. It's just all over the place. So this is, this is and I, we have different preferences, but my preference would also be to have like a form that they could fill out for post because, you know, it's very difficult through email to tell who's a really going to be a strong collaborator for you, uh, like a strong postdoc, strong student, um, because you want a bunch of details, but at the same time, you don't want a million pages worth of email. So you want a little bit of application process. So I usually set up a form that helps me indicate how uh, passionate the person is, how uh, willing they are to do hard work. Like I, I often ask a question, people, of what do you think is more important to work hard or to work smart? And I use that, uh, those types of questions to indicate who I would like to work with um, <laughs> because it's it's counterintuitive. But uh, anyway, I'll leave, uh, I'll leave that question unanswered for people to figure out themselves. But maybe if you know my love for David Goggins, you will understand. <laughs> So anyway, those uh, are good thoughts about the forms and everything. It, it's yeah. it's difficult, and that's something that evolves. Email email is such a a messy thing. There's uh, uh, speaking of Baltimore, Cal Newport, if you know who that is, um, he wrote a book called Deep Work. He's a computer science professor, and he's currently working on a book about email, about all the ways that email is broken. So it's just it's, it's going to be a fascinating read. This is a little bit of a general question, but uh, almost a bigger picture question that we touched on a little bit, but let's just 
touch it in a full way, which is uh, what have all the psychedelic studies you've conducted taught you about the human mind, about the human brain and the human mind? Is there something, if you look at the human scientist you were before this work and the scientist you are now, how has your understanding of the human mind changed? I'm thinking of that in two categories. One kind of more, more scientific. I mean, they're both scientific, but um, one more about, you know, more about the the brain and behavior and the and the mind, so to speak. And, and as a behaviorist, I always see sort of the mind as a metaphor for behavior. So, but anyway, that gets philosophical. <laughs> the, but it's really increasing the the. So the one category is increasing the appreciation for the magnitude of depth. I mean, so these are all metaphors of of human experience. That might be a good way to, because you use certain words like consciousness and what, and it's like, we're using constructs that aren't well-defined and unless we kind of dig in, but into human experience like that, the experiences on these compounds can be so far out there or so deep and that like and they're doing that by tinkering with the same machinery that's going on up there i mean i'm a, my assumption and i think it's a good assumption is that all experiences you know there's a there's a biological side to all phenomenal experience you know so there there is not you know the divide between biology you know and and um and experience or psychology is is it's you know, it's not one or the other. These are just two, you know, two sides of the same coin. I mean, you, the, you're avoiding the the word, the use <laughs> of the word consciousness, for example, but the experience is referring to the subjective experience. So it's it's the actual right. technical use of the word consciousness of of yeah, yeah and subjective I'm, experience. And even that oh. word, there, there are certain ways that like like sort of like if we're talking about access consciousness or narrative self awareness, which is an aspect of like you can wrap a definition around that and we can talk meaningfully about it, but so often around psychedelics, it's used in this much more, you know, in terms of ultimately explaining phenomenal consciousness itself, the so-called hard problem, you know, uh, relating to that question and, and psychedelics really haven't spoken to that. And that's why it's hard because like, it's hard to imagine anything. But I think what I was getting is like that, that psychedelics have done this by the reason I was getting into the biology versus mind psychology divide is that that just to kind of set up the fact that I think all of our experience is related to these biological events. Mm -hmm. So whether they be naturally occurring neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine and norepinephrine, et cetera, and, and a whole other sort of biological activity and, and kind of a, a, another layer up that we could talk about is network activity, communication amongst brain areas. Like this is always going on. Even if I just prompt you to think about uh, a loved one, you, you, you know, like there's something happening biologically. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. So that's always another side of, of the coin. So, and another way to put that is all of our subjective experience outside of drugs. It's, it's all a controlled hallucination in a sense, it, like this is completely constructed. Our our experience of reality is completely a simulation. So I, I think I think we're on on solid ground to say that that's our best guess, and that's a pretty reasonable thing to 
to, to say scientifically. It's like all the um, rich complexity of the world emerges from just some biology and some chemicals. So in that, you know, in that that definition implied a causation. It comes from, and so that's right. that's we know at least there's a solid correlation there. <laughs> and so then we delve dig in, we delve deep yeah. into the philosophy of like idealism or materialism and things like this, which I'm not an expert in, but I know we're getting into that territory. You don't even necessarily have to go there. Like you, you at least go to the level of like, okay, we know there's there seems to be this one on one correspondence, and that seems pretty solid like you can't prove a negative and you can't prove you know it's in that category of like <laughs> yeah me <laughs> you you could come up with an experience that maybe doesn't have a biological correlate but right. then you're talking about there's also the limits of the science so is it a false negative but i think our best guess and a very decent assumption is that every psychological event has a biological correlate so with that said you know the idea that you can throw alter that biology in a pretty trivial manner i mean you could take like a relatively small number of these molecules, throw yeah. them into the nervous system, and then have a a sixty year old person who has, I mean, you name it. I mean, that has hiked to the top of Everest and that speaks five languages, and that has been married and has kids and grandkids, and has you name it. You know, like been at the top and say this fundamentally changed who I am as a person and and the. And what I think life is about, like that's that's the thing about psychedelics that just floors me, and it 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 never fails. I mean, sometimes you get bogged down by the paperwork and running studies and all the I don't know all of the the BS that can come with being in academia and everything, and then you and sometimes you get some dud sessions where it's not the full ma all the magic isn't happening, and it's you know more or less it's or. It's either a dud or somewhere in, in the, and I don't mean to dismiss them, but you know, it's it's not like these magnificent sort of reports. But sometimes you get the full Monty report from one of these people, and you're like, oh yeah, that's why we're doing this. Whether it's like therapeutically or just to understand the mind, and you're like, it, you're still floored. Like, how is that possible? How did we slightly alter serotonergic neurotransmission? And say, and this person is now saying that they're 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 making fundamental differences in the in the priorities of their life after sixty years. It also just fills you with uh, awe of the possibility of experiences we're yet to have uncovered. If if just a few chemicals can change so much, it's like, man, what if this could be opt? I mean, like, how? Because we're just like took a little. It's like lighting a match or something in the darkness, and you could see there's a lot more there, but you don't know how much more. And that's right. And then, like, where's that going to go? With like, I mean, I'm always like aware of the fact that like we always, as humans and as scientists, think that we figured out 99, and we're working right. on that first one percent. And we got to keep reminding ourselves it's hard to do. Like, we figured out like not even one yeah. percent. Like, we're we know nothing. Yeah. And so, like. I can't, I can speculate and I might sound like a fool, but like, what are drugs, even the concept of drugs, like 10 years, 50 years, hundred years, a thousand years, if we, if we're surviving, like, you know, molecules that go to a specific area of the brain in combination with technology, in combination with the magnetic stimulation, in combination with the, you know, like targeted pharmacology of like, oh, like this subset of serotonin 2A receptors in the claustrum 
you know, at this time in this particular sequence in combination with this other thing, you know, like this baseball cap you wear that like has, you know, you know, has, has one of the, is doing some of these things that we can only do with these like giant, like pieces of equipment now, like where it's going to go is going to be endless. And it becomes easy to, you know, combine within virtual reality where the virtuality is going to move from being something out here to being more in there. And then we're getting, like we talked about before, we're already in a virtual reality in terms of human perception and, and, and cognition models of the, of the universe being all representations and, you know, sort of, you know, color not existing and just, you know, our representations of EM um, wavelengths, et cetera, you know, sound being vibrations and all of this. And so as the, the external VR and the internal VR come closer to each other, like this is what I think about in terms of the future of drugs, like all of this stuff sort of combines and, mm. and like the, where that goes is just, it's, it's unthinkable. Like we, we're probably going to, you know, again, I might sound like a fool and we, this may not happen, but I think it's possible, you know, to go completely offline, like where pe most of people's experiences may be going into these internal worlds. And I mean, maybe you through, through some, through a combination of these techniques, you create experiences where someone could live a thousand years in terms of maybe they're living a regular lifespan, but in over the next two seconds, you're living a thousand years worth of experience inside, inside your mind through yeah. the, yeah. Through this manipulation of the, like, yeah. is that possible? Like just based on, on like for, first for, principles yeah, first and principles, like, yes, <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Like give us another 50, 100, 500, like who knows, but like, how could it not go there? And a small tangent, what are your thoughts in this broader definition of drugs, of psychedelics, of mind altering things, what are your thoughts about Neuralink and brain computer interfaces sort of um, being able to uh, electrically stimulate and read uh, neuronal activity in the brain and then connect that to the, the computer, which is another way uh, from a computational perspective for me is kind of appealing, but it's, it's another way of um, altering subtly the behavior of the brain that's kind of, if you zoom out, reminiscent of the way psychedelics do as well. Right. So what do you have, like what are your thoughts about Neuralink? What are your hopes as a researcher of mind altering devices, systems, chemicals? I guess broadly speaking, I'm all for it. I mean, for the same reason I am with psychedelics, but it comes with all the caveats. You know, you're going into a brave new world where it's like all of a sudden there's going to be a dark side. There's going to be, you know, the serious ethical considerations, but that that should not stop us from from moving there. I mean, particularly the stuff from an unknown expert, but on the short list in the short term, it's like, yeah, can we help these serious neurological disorders? Like, hell yeah. Like, and, and I'm also sensitive to something be, being someone that has lots of, you know, neuroscience colleagues, mm -hmm. um, you know, with some of this stuff, and I can't talk about particulars, I'm not recalling, but, you know, in terms of, you know, stuff getting out there and then kind of a mocking of, 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 uh, you know, oh gosh, they're, they're saying this is unique. We, we know this or, or sort of like this belittling of like, oh, 
you know, this sounds like it's just a, I don't know, a commercialization or like an oversimple. I forget what the example was, but something like a, something that came off to some of my neuroscientific colleagues as an oversimplification, or at least the way they said it. Oh, from a Neuralink perspective. Right. Oh, we've known that for years. Yes, and I like, see. but I'm very sympathetic to like, maybe it's because of my very limited, but relatively speaking, the amount of exposure the psychedelic work has had to my limited experience of being out there. Mm-hmm. And then you think about someone like Mike Musk, who's like, like really, really out there. And you just get all these arrows that like, and it's hard to be like when you're plowing new ground, like you're going to get, you're going to get criticized. Like every little word that you, like this balance between speaking to like people to make it meaningful, something scientists aren't very good at Yes, having people understand what you're saying and then being belittled by oversimplifying something in, in terms of the public message. So I'm extremely sympathetic and I'm a big fan of like what that, you know, what, what Elon Musk does, like, yeah, tunnels sweet. through the ground and <laughs> SpaceX and all this just like hell yeah like this guy is has some he has some great ideas and there's something to be said it's not just the the communication to the public I I think his first principles thinking it's like because uh, I get this in the artificial intelligence world it's probably similar to neuroscience world where Elon will say something like or oh, I worked at, at MIT I worked on autonomous vehicles and he's sort of I could sense how much he pisses off like every roboticist at MIT and everybody who works on like the human factor side of safety of autonomous vehicles in saying like, nah, we need we don't need to consider human beings in the car. Like the il car will drive itself. It's obvious that neural networks is all you need. Like it's obvious that like we should be able to uh systems that should be able to learn constantly. And they don't really need LIDAR, they just need uh, cameras because we humans just use our eyes and that's the same as cameras. So like it doesn't, why would we need anything else? And you just have to make a system that learns faster and faster and faster and neural networks can do that. And so that's pissing off every single community. It's pissing off human factors community saying, you don't need to consider the human driver in the picture. You can just focus on the robotics problem. It's pissing off every robotics uh, person for saying LIDAR can be just ignored, it can be camera. Every robotics person knows that camera is really noisy, that's really difficult to deal with. But he's, uh, and then uh, every, every AI person who says, who hears neural networks and, and says like, neural networks can learn everything, like almost presuming that it's kind of going to achieve general intelligence. The problem with all those haters in the three communities is that they're looking one year ahead five years ahead. The hilarious thing about the, the quote unquote ridiculous things that Elon Musk is saying is they have a pretty good shot at being true in 20 years. And so like, when you just look at the, you know, uh, when you look at the progression of these kinds of predictions, um, and sometimes first principles thinking, thinking can allow you to do that, is you see that it's kind of obvious that things are going to progress this way. And if you just remove your the prejudice you hold about the particular battles of the current academic environment and just look at the big picture of the progression of the technology, you can usually uh, you can usually see the world in the same kind of way. And so in that same way, looking at psychedelics, you can see like there is so many exciting possibilities here if we fully engage in the research. Same thing with Neuralink. If we fully engage, so we go from 
a thousand channels of communication of the brain to billions of channels of communication of the brain. And we figure out all, uh, many of the details of how to do that safely with neurosurgery and so on, that the world would just change completely in the same kind of way that Elon is. It's so ridiculous to hear him talk about a uh, symbiotic relationship between AI and uh, the, the, the human brain. But it's like, is it though? <laughs> like, it's, it, it, is it? <laughs> because it's, I can see in 50 years that's going to be an obvious, like everyone will have, like obviously you have, like why are we typing stuff in the computer? It doesn't make any sense. That's right. stupid. Like, People used to type on a keyboard with a mouse. What is that? So, and it seems pretty clear, like we're going to be there. Yeah. Like, it, and the only question is like, what's the time frame? Is that going to be frame. 20 or is it 20, 50 or 100? Like, how could we not? And and the, like, the thing that I guess upsets with Elon and others uh, is the timeline he tends to do. I think a lot of people tend to do that kind of thing. I definitely do it, which is like, it'll be done this year right. versus like, it'll be done in 10 years. See, the timeline is a little bit too rushed, but from our leadership perspective, it inspires the engineers to, uh, to do the best work of their life to really kind of believe, because to do the impossible, you have to first believe it, which well, is a really important aspect of innovation. And there's the delayed discounting aspect I talked about before. It's right, like saying, exactly. oh, this is gonna be a thing 20, 50 years from now. Yeah. It's like, yeah. what motivates anybody? So if you could, And even if you're fudging it or like wishful thinking a little yeah, bit, or, yeah. or let's just say erring on one side of the probability distribution. Yeah. <laughs> Like there's value in saying like, yeah, like there's a chance we could get this done in a year. And you know what? And if you set a goal for a year and you're not successful, hey, you might get it done in three years. Whereas if you had aimed at 20 years, well, you either would have never done it at all or you would have aimed at 20 years and then wouldn't have taken you 10. So there. And the other thing I think about this, like in terms of his work and and I guess we've seen with psychedelics, it's like there's. There's a lack of appreciation for like sort of the variability you need in natural selection, sort of extrapolating from biological, you know, from evolution. Like, hey, maybe he's wrong about focusing only on the cameras and not these other things. Be empirically driven. It's like, yeah, you need to like when he's, you know, when you need to get the regulation, is it safe enough to get this thing on the road? Those yeah. are real questions. And be empirically driven. And if he can meet the whatever standard is is relevant. That's the standard and be driven by that. So don't let it affect your ethics. But if he's on the wrong path, how wonderful someone's exploring that wrong path. Yeah. He's going to figure out it's yeah. a wrong path. And like other people, he's, yeah. damn it, he's doing something. Yeah. Like he's, you know, and, and so appreciating that variability, Yeah. you know, that like it's, it's valuable even if he's not on. I mean, this is all over the place in, in science. It's like a good theory, one standard definition is that it generates testable hypotheses and like the ultimate model is never going to be the same as reality some models are going to work better than others like you know newtonian physics got us a long ways even if there was a better model like waiting and some models weren't as good as you know were never that successful but just even like putting them out there and test it. We wouldn't know something is a bad model until someone puts it out anyway. So yeah, uh, diversity of ideas is essential right. for progress. Yeah. So we brought up consciousness a few times. There's several things I want to kind of disentangle there. So one, you recently wrote a paper titled "Consciousness, Religion, and Gurus: Pitfalls of Psychedelic Medicine." So that's one side of it. You've kind of already mentioned that these terms can be a little bit misused or um, or used in a variety of ways 
that uh, they can they can be confusing, but in a specific way, as much as we can be specific about these things, about the actual hard problem of consciousness or understanding what is consciousness, this weird thing that it feels like it feels like something to experience things. Have psychedelics given you some kind of insight on what is consciousness? You've mentioned that it feels like psychedelics allows you to kind of dismantle your sense of self, like step outside of yourself. So that feels like somehow playing with this mechanism of consciousness. And if it is in fact playing with a mechanism of consciousness using just a few chemicals, it feels like we're very much in the neighborhood of being able to maybe understand the actual biological mechanisms of how consciousness can emerge from the brain. So yeah, there's there's a bunch there. I think I, my preface is that I certainly have opinions that are outside that I can say here are my best speculations as a, as a as just a person and an armchair philosopher, and it's that philosophy is certainly not my my training and my expertise. Um, so I have thoughts there, but that that I recognize are completely in the realm of speculation that are like things that I would love to wrap empirical science around, but that are, you know, there's no data and, and getting to the hard problem, like no conceivable way, even though I'm, I'm very open, like I'm hoping that that problem can be cracked. And I do, I, as an armchair philosopher, I do think that is a problem. I don't think it can be dismissed as some people argue it's not even really a, a problem. I, it, it strikes me that that explaining just the existence of phenomenal consciousness is a problem. So anyway, I, I very much ha keep that divide in mind when I talk about these things, what we can really say about what we've learned through science, including by psychedelics versus like what I can speculate on in, in terms of, of, you know, the nature of reality and consciousness. But in terms of by and large, Skeptically, I have to say, psychedelics have not really taught us anything about the nature of consciousness. I'm hopeful that they will. They they have been used around certain, I don't even know if features is the right term, but things that are called consciousness. So consciousness can refer to not only just phenomenal consciousness, which is like, you know, the the, the source of the hard problem and yep. what it is to be like Nagel's um, description, but um the sense of self or so which can be sort of like the the experiential self moment to moment or it can be like the narrative self the string together of stories so those are things that i think can be and and a little bit's been done with with psychedelics regarding that but i i think there's far more potential like but so like one story that unfolded is that psychedelics acutely have an effects on the default mode network, a certain a pattern of, of activation amongst a subset of brain areas that is associated with self-referential processing, seems mm -hmm. to be more active, more communication between these um, uh, areas, like uh, the posterior cingulate cortex and the medial prefrontal cortex, for example, being parts of this that are, and, and others that are um, tied with sort of thinking about yourself, remembering yourself in the past, projecting yourself into the future. And so that it's an interesting story emerged when it was found that when psilocybin is on board, you know, in the person's system, 
that there's a de- there's less communication amongst these these areas. So with resting state fMRI imaging, that there's there's less synchronization or presumably communication between these areas. And so I think it was has been overstated in terms of, ah, we see this is like, this is the dissolving of the ego. This is it. The story made a whole lot of sense, but there's several, I think that story is really being challenged. Like one, we see increasing number of drugs that are, that, that decouple that network, including ones like that aren't psychedelic. So this may just be a property, frankly, of being like, you know, screwed up, you know, like, mm-hmm. you, you know, being out of your head, being like, like, you know. So anytime out. you mess with a perception system, maybe it screws up some, some, uh, just our ability to just function in the, the holistically like we do in order, yeah, yeah, for the brain to perceive stuff, to be able to map it to memory, to connect things together, the, the, the whole recur mechanism that, that could just be messed with. with right. Drugs. And it couldn't, I'm speculating, it could be tied to more if you had to download in the language, everyday language, like, not feeling like yourself, like right. so. Whether that be like really drunk or really hopped up on amphetamine, or you know, on like we found it like decoupling of the default mode network on Salvinor A, which is a smokable psychedelic, which is a, a non-classic psychedelic, but another one where like DMT, where people are often talking to entities and that type of thing. Yeah. That was a really fun study to run, but nonetheless, most people say it's not a classic psychedelic and and doesn't have some 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 of those phenomenal features that people report from classic psychedelics and not sort of the clear sort of ego loss type, not at least not in the way that people report it with classic psychedelics. So you get it with all these different drugs. And so, mm-hmm. and then you also see just broad, broad changes in network activity with other networks. And so I think that story took off a little too soon, although, yes. so I think in, in the story that the DMN, the default mode network relating to the self and I know some neuroscientists, it drives them crazy if you say that e- it's the ego. And that's yeah. like, e- e- but self-referential processing, if you go that far, like that was already known before psychedelics. Psychedelics didn't really contribute to that. The idea that this type of, of net brain network activity was related to a sense of self. Mm-hmm. But... <laughs> It is absolutely striking that psychedelics that people report with pretty high reliability, these unity experiences that where people subjectively like like they report losing or again, like the boundaries of the however you want to say it, like mm-hmm. like these these unity experiences, I think we can do a lot with that in terms of figuring out the the nature of the, the sense of self. Now, I don't think that's the same as the hard problem or or the existence of phenomenal consciousness, because you can build an AI system, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that like will pass a Turing test in terms of demonstrating the qualities of like uh, a sense of self. It will talk as if there's a self, and there's probably a certain like algorithm or whatever, like computational, like you know, scaling up of computations that results in somehow. And I think this is the argument with with humans, with some have speculated this why do we have this illusion of of the self that's that's evolved that and we might find this with ai that like it works you know having mm-hmm. a sense of self or or and that's stated wrong incorrectly like acting as if there is a an agent at play and dim- behaviorally acting like you know there is a there is a self that might kind of work and so you can program a computer or a robot um, 
to basically demonstrate, have an algorithm like that and demonstrate that type of behavior. And I think that's completely silent on whether there's an actual experience inside there. I've been um, struggling to find the right words and how I feel about that whole thing. But because uh, I've, I've said it poorly before, I've before said that there's no difference between the appearance and the actual existence of consciousness or intelligence or any of that. What I really mean is the the more the appearance starts to be look like the thing, the more there's this area where it's like, I don't think, I don't, I, our whole idea of what is real and what is just an illusion is um, not the right way to think about it. So the whole idea is like, if you create a system that looks like it's having fun, the more it's realistically able to portray itself as having fun, like there's a certain gray area at which it's, the system is having fun. Uh, And same with intelligence, same with consciousness. And we humans wanna simplify, like it feels like the way we simplify the existence and the illusion of something uh, is is uh, missing the whole mm-hmm. truth of the nature of reality, which we're not yet able to understand. Like it's the 1%, we only understand 1% currently, so we don't have the right uh, physics to talk about things. We don't have the right science to talk about things. But to me, like the uh, uh, faking it and actually it being true is, um, the the difference is much smaller than what humans would like to imagine. That's my yeah. intuition, but the philosophers hate that because, and uh, guess what? It's philosophers. What have you actually built? <laughs> uh, the, so like to, to me is that's the difference between philosophy and engineering. It, it feels like if we push the creation, the engineering, like fake it until you make it all the way, which is like fake consciousness until you realize, holy crap, this thing is conscious fake intelligence until you realize, holy crap, this is intelligence. And from the, the my curiosity with psychedelics and just ne- neurobiology, neuroscience is like, it feels, I'm, I, I love the armchair. I love sitting in that armchair because it feels like at a certain point, you're going to think about this problem and there's going to be an aha moment. Like that's what the armchair does. Sometimes science prevents you from really thinking, Right. wait, like it's really simple. There's something really simple. Like there's some, there could be some dance of chemicals that we're totally unaware of. Not from not from a, aspects of like which chemicals to combine with which biological architectures, but more like we were thinking of it completely wrong. That uh, just out of the blue, like. Maybe the human mind is just like a radio that tunes into some other medium where consciousness actually exists. Like mm-hmm. those uh, weird sort of hypothetical, like maybe we're just thinking about the human mind totally wrong. Maybe there's no such thing as individual intelligence. Maybe it is all collective intelligence between humans. Like maybe the intelligence is possessed in the communication of language between minds. And then in fact, consciousness is a property of that language 
uh, versus a property of the individual minds. And somehow the neurotransmitters will be able to connect to that. So uh, then, then AI systems can join that common collective intelligence, that common language. You know, like just thinking completely outside of the box. I just said a bunch of crazy things. I don't know, but, but thinking outside the box uh, and there's something about subtle manipulation of the chemicals of the brain, which feels like the best or one of the great chances of the scientific process leading us to an actual understanding of the hard problem. So I am very hopeful that, and, and so I, I mean, I'm a radical empiricist, which I'm, I'm very strong with, with that. Like that's what, you know, it, so, you know, science isn't about ultimately being a materialist. It's like, it's about being an empiricist in my view. And so, for example, I'm, I'm very fascinated by the so-called psi phenomenon, you know, like stuff that people just kind of reject out of hand. Um, you know, I, I kind of orient towards that stuff with, with an idea of, um, you know, hey, look, you know, what we consider, like anything exists as natural. And so, but the boundary of what, what, what we observe in nature, like what we recognize as in nature moves, like what we do today and what we know today would only be described as magic 500 years ago or even a hundred years ago, some yeah. of it. So there will surely be things that like you explain these phenomena that just sound like completely sup they're supernatural now where there may be for some of it, like some of it might turn out to be a complete bunk and some mm -hmm. of it might turn out to be um, it's just another layer of nature, whether we're talking about multiple dimensions that are invoked or something right. we don't even have the language toward. And what you're saying about the moving together of the model and the real thing of conscious, like I'm very sympathetic to that. So that's that part of like on the armchair side where I, I want to be clear, I can't say this as a scientist, but just in terms of speculating, I, I find myself attracted to these um, more of the, the, the sort of the, the panpsychism ideas. And that kind of makes sense to me. I don't know if that's what you meant there, but it seemed like related the sense that ultimately if, if if you were completely modeling, like it's like if you completely modeling, unless you dismiss like the, the the idea that there is a phenomenal consciousness, which I think is hard given that we all I seem like I have one. That's really all I I I know. But it that's so compelling, I can't just dismiss that. Like if you're if if you take that as a given, then the only way for the model and the and the real thing to merge is if there is something baked into the nature of reality, you know, sort of like in the history of like, there's certain just like fundamental forces or fundamental, yeah. like, and that, and that's been useful for us. And sometimes we find out that that's pointing towards something else, or sometimes it's still, a, seems like it's a fundamental and sometimes it's a placeholder for someone to figure out, but there's something like, this is just a given, you yeah. know, this is just, you know, and, and sometimes something like gravity seems like a very good placeholder. And then there's something better that comes to replace it. Right. So, so, you know, I kind of think about like consciousness and I didn't, I kind of had this inclination before I knew there was a, a term for it, um, Rosalian monism, the, the, the idea that, which is a a form of, pan, again, I'm not, I'm an armchair philosopher, yeah, but not a very good one. Bro broadly, panpsychism, by the way, is the, the idea that sort of consciousness permeates all matter and, or it's, right. a, it's a fundamental part of physics of the universe kind of thing. So right. there's the, and there's a lot of different flavors of it as, as you're, as you're alluding to. And something that struck me as like consistent with some just, you know, inclinations of mind, just total speculation is, is this idea of um, everything we know in, in science and, and with most of the stuff we think of physics, you know, really describes 
it's all interactions. Mm -hmm. It's not the thing itself. Like there's a, there, there is something to the, Hmm. and this sounds very new agey, which is why it's, it's very difficult. And I have a high bullshit like meter and everything, but like in isness, I mean, I think about like Huxley, Aldous Huxley with his mescaline experience and doors of procession, like there's an isness Mm -hmm. there in, you know, Alan Watson, like there is a, a nature of Mm -hmm. being again, very new agey sounding, but maybe there is something to, and, and when we say consciousness, we think of like this human experience, but maybe that's just, that's so processed. And so that's so far, so it's so derivative of this kind of basic thing that we wouldn't even recognize the basic thing, but the basic thing might just be, this is not about the interaction between particles. This is what it is like to exist as a particle. And maybe it's not even particles. Maybe it's like space-time itself. I mean, again, totally in the speculation And, and something outside area. of space-time. So it's funny because we don't have this, neither the science nor the proper language to talk about it. All we have is kind of uh, little intuitions about there might be something in that direction of the darkness right. to pursue. And that, 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 in that sense, I find panpsychism uh, interesting in that like, it does feel like there's something fundamental here. That consciousness is it's not just like, okay, so the flip side, consciousness could be just a very basic and trivial symptom, like like a little hack of nature that's useful uh, for like survival of an organism. It's not something fundamental. It's, it's just this very basic, mm-hmm. boring chemical thing that somehow has convinced us humans because we're very human-centric, we're very self-centric, that this is somehow really important, but it's actually pretty obvious. But, or it could be something really fundamental to the nature of the universe. So both of those are, to me, pretty compelling. And I think eventually scientifically testable. It is so frustrating that it's hard to design a scientific experiment currently, but I think it's that's how Nobel Prizes are won. Is right. nobody did it right, right. until they do it. <laughs> so and the, the reason the I lean towards, and again, armchair spec, if I had to bet yeah. like a thousand dollars on which one of these ultimately be proved, I would, I would head, I would lean towards, I'd put my bets on, uh, on something like panpsychism rather than the, the emergence of phenomenal con- consciousness through complexity or computational complexity, because although certainly what if there is some underlying fundamental consciousness? It's clearly being processed, in, in, in you know, in this way you know, through computation, um, in terms of resulting in our experience and the experience, presumably, of other animals. But the reason I would bet on panpsychism is to me, Occam's razor. It just in terms of truly the hard problem, like this. At some point, you have an inside looking out, and even looking refers to vision, and it doesn't. That's just an example. You know, but just. There's an inside experiencing something. At some point of complexity, all of a sudden, you know, you start from this objective universe and all we know about is interactions between things and things happen. And at this certain level of complexity, magically there's an inside. Mm -hmm. That to me doesn't pass Occam's razor as easily as maybe there is a fundamental property of the universe of, you know, there's both subjective and objective there is both interactions amongst things and there is 
the thing itself. Yes. But, but yeah. That, uh, so I, I'm of two minds. I agree with you totally on half my mind. And the other half is I've seen looking at cellular automata a lot, which is complete. It sure does seem that we don't understand anything about complexity, like the emergence, the, the just the property. In fact, that could be a fundamental property of reality is something within the emergence from simple things interacting, somehow miraculous things happen. And like that, I don't understand that. That could be, that could be fundamental. That like something about the uh, layers of abstraction, uh, like layers of reality, like really small things interacting. And then on another layer emerges actual complicated behavior, even though the underlying thing is super simple. Right. Like that process, we don't really don't understand either. And that could be bigger than any of the things we're talking about. That, right. that That's the, the, the basic force behind everything that's happening in the universe is from simple things, complex phenomena can happen. And the thing that gives me pause is, is that I'm concerned about a threshold there. Like, how is right. it likely that now there may be, and there may be some right. qualitative shift you. that yeah. in the realm of like, we don't even, we don't even understand complexity yet. Like you're saying, like, so maybe there is, but I do think like, if it, if it is a result of the complexity, well, you know, just having helium versus hydrogen is a form of complexity. Yeah. Having the existence of stars versus clouds of gas is a complexity. The, the, the entire universe has been this increasing complexity and so that kind of brings me back to then the other of like, okay, if there's, if, if it's about complexity, then we should, then it exists at a certain level in these simple systems like a star or, or a, yeah, you know, they all a have more a complex atom. panpsychism, that's right. But we humans, uh, the qualitative shift, we might have evolved to appreciate certain kinds of thresholds. Right. Yeah. I do think it's likely that, this idea that you know, whether or not there's an inner experience, which is phenomenal, it's the hard problem, that acting like an agent, you know, like having an algorithm that basically like operates as if there is an agent, that's clearly a thing that I think has worked and that there is a whole lot to figure out there that, that um, and I think psychedelics will be extremely helpful in figuring more out about that because they do seem to a lot of times eliminate that or whatever, radically shift that sense of of self. Let me ask the craziest question. Indulge me for a second. I'll, uh, <laughs> this is a joke. Compared to what we've been talking about? Like, okay. <laughs> no, I all, seatbelt on. all of this is a sign. All, all of that, despite the, the caveats about armchair, I think is within the reach of science. Uh, let me let me ask one that's kind of um, also within the reach of science, but as Joe likes to say, uh, it's entirely possible, right? Uh, is it possible that uh, with these DMT trips, when you meet entities, is it possible that these entities are extraterrestrial life forms? Like our understanding of little green men with aliens that show up is totally off. I often think about this, like what would actual extraterrestrial intelligence look like? And my sense is it would look like very different from anything we can even begin to comprehend.
and how would it communicate? And how would it communicate? Yeah. Would it be necessarily spaceships with right. interstellar travel or? Could it be communicating through chemicals, through if there's a panpsychism situation, if there's something, not if, I almost for sure know we don't understand, you know, a lot about the function of our mind in connection to the fabric of uh, the physics in the universe. A lot of people seem to think we have theoretical physics pretty figured out. I have my doubts because I'm pretty sure it always feels like we have everything figured out until we don't. <laughs> right. But I mean, there's no grand unifying theory yet, right? But, I mean, but even that's then, been widely recognized. We could be missing out like the concept of the universe just can be completely off. Like mm -hmm. how many other universes are there? All those all those kinds of things. I mean, there's just the, the basic nature of information, the uh, time, yeah, time, time, all all of those things. Even, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, what, yeah, whether that's just like a thing we assign value to or the, whether it's fundamental or not, that's whole, Sean, Sean right, I could talk to yeah. Sean Carroll forever about whether time is emergent or fundamental to the reality, but, is it possible that the entities we meet are actual alien life forms? Do you ever think about that? Yeah, 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 I do. <laughs> and 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 I've to some degree laid my cards out with by identifying as a radical empiricist, you know. And it's like yeah. so the answer is it possible? And I think, you know, ultimately if a, if you're a good scientist, you got to say now that's at the extremes, it's a like yes. Yes. You know, and it might get more interesting when you had to you're asked to guess about the probability of that. Is that a one in a one in a million, one in a trillion, one in a one in uh, more than the number of atoms in the universe uh, probability? And as an empiricist, is like what what is a good testable? Like, how would you know the answer to that question? Well, how would you be oh, able to validate? Smart. I mean, well, can you get some information that's verifiable? Like, like um, information that about some other planet that that or or some aspect some and gosh it would be an interesting range but what range of discovery that we can anticipate we're going to know within um you know whatever a few years next 5 10 20 years um and seeing if you can get that predict that information now and then over time it might be verified you know the type of thing like you know part of Einstein's work was ultimately verified not until decades and decades later, at least certain aspects through the, um, through empirical observations. Um, but, it, but it's also possible that the, the alien beings have a very different value system and perception of the world where all of this little capitalistic improvements that we're all after, like predicting, the concept of predicting the future too, is like totally useless to, uh, to, to other life forms uh, that have, that perhaps think in a much different way, maybe a more transcendent way, I don't know, but. So they wouldn't even sign the consent form to be a participant in our they, experiment. They would <laughs> like, not, yeah. they would not. Uh, and they wouldn't yeah. even understand the nature of these experiments. I mean, that um, maybe it's purely in the realm of uh, the, the consciousness thing that we, we uh, talked about. So they're communicating in, in a way that is totally different than the kinds of communication that we think of as on earth. Like what's the purpose of communication for us? For us humans, the purpose of communication is sharing ideas, it feels like. Like converging, like it's the Dawkins like memes. It's like we're sharing ideas in order to figure out how to uh, collaborate together to get food into our systems and procreate and then like, 
murder everybody in the neighboring tribe because they, they'll steal our food. Like we are all about sharing ideas. Maybe uh, it's possible to, to have another alien life form that's more about sharing experiences. You know, like it's less about ideas. I don't know. And maybe uh, that'll be us in a few years. Like yeah. How could it not? Like instead of explaining something laboriously to you, like having people describe the ineffable psychedelic experience, yeah. like if we could record that and then get the Neuralink of 50 years from now, like, oh, just plug this into your- Just transferring the experience. Yeah, it's like, oh, now you feel what it's what it's like. And like, in one sense, like, how could we not go there? And yeah. then you get into the realm, of, especially when you throw time into it, are the aliens us Yeah. in the future? Or even like a transcendental temporal, like the, the us beyond time. Right. Like, I don't know, like you get into this realm, well, one. there's a lot of possibilities. Yeah. But I think, you know, there's one psychedelic researcher that's who did high-dose DMT um, <laughs> research in the 90s who speculated that, um, that and there was a lot of alien encounter experiences, like maybe these are like entities from some other dimension or you, he labeled the, it as speculation, but, you know. Do you remember the name? Oh, Rick Strassman. Oh, Rick Strassman. Who did, yeah, yeah, the, the DMT work. He labeled it as speculation, but, you know, I think that, yeah, I, I think we'd be wise to kind of, you know, find, you know, it's always that balance between being mm -hmm. empirically grounded and, and skeptical, but also not being, and I think in science, well, often we are too closed, Yeah, it, which relates to like, you're talking about Elon, like in academia, it's like often like, I think you're punished for thinking or even talking about 20 years from now, because it's just so far removed from your next grant or for your next paper that you're, it's easy pickings. Yeah. And, you know, that you're not allowed to speculate. So I, I think the, uh, I'm a huge fan of, I think the the best way to me, at least to practice like science or to practice good engineering is to like do two things and just bounce off, like spend most of the time doing the rigor of the day to day of what can be accomplished now in the engineering space or in the science, like what can actually, what can you construct an experiment around do like that, the usual rigor of the scientific process, but then every once in a while, on a regular basis, to step outside and talk about aliens and consciousness. And uh, we just walk along the line of things that are outside the reach of science currently. Uh, free will, the, the, illusion, the illusion or the perception of the experience of free will, of anything, just, just mm -hmm. the, the entirety of it, being able to travel in time through wormholes, it's like, it's really useful to do that, especially as a scientist. Like if that's all you do, you go into a land where you're not actually able to think rigorously. There's something, at least to me, that if you just hop back and forth, you're able to, I think, do exactly the kind of injection of out of the box thinking to your regular day-to-day -day science that will ultimately lead to breakthroughs. And, but, you, but you have to be the good scientist most of the time. And that's consistent with what I think the great scientists of history, like yes. like in most of the, the the history, you know, the greats, you know, the Newtons and, uh, you know, Einsteins, I mean, they were, there was less of a, and, and this change, I think as time marched on, but less of a separation between those realms. Yes. It's like, there's the inclination now for, it's like, as a scientist, and it, this is like, you know, this is science, this is my work. And then this is like my inclination to say, 
oh, Lex, don't take me too seriously because this is my armchair. I'm not speaking yeah, as a scientist. Yes. I'm bending over backwards yes. to say, like, you know, to divide that self. And maybe there's been less of, there's been that evolution. And, and that's, and like the greats like didn't see that. I mean, Newton, yeah. and, and you go back in time and it's like, that obviously like connects to then religion, especially if that is the predominant world where Newton, like how much, you know, like how much time did he spend trying to like decode the Bible and whatnot, you know, yeah, and maybe that was a yeah. dead end. But it's like if if you really believe in that in yeah. that particular religion and you're this mastermind and you're trying to figure things out, it's not like oh this is what my job description is and this is what the grant wants. It's like no, I've got this limited time on the planet. I'm going to figure out as much stuff as possible. Nothing is off the table, and you're just putting it all together. So this is kind of this trajectory is maybe related to this the siloing in science, like again related to my like oh I'm not a philosopher. You know, going whether you consider that a science or not, not empirical science, but like going to these different disciplines, like you know, the greats, you know, didn't yeah. observe the boundaries. The yeah. boundaries didn't exist; no they boundaries. didn't observe them. Yeah. Uh, so, speaking of uh, the finiteness of our existence on on in this world, uh, so on the front of psychedelics and teaching you lessons as a researcher, as a human being. Uh, what have you learned about death, about mortality, about the finiteness of our existence? Are you yourself afraid of death? And how has your view, do you ponder it? And has your view of your mortality changed with the research you've done? Yeah, yeah. So I do ponder it and- uh, Are you afraid of death? Probably on a daily basis, I ponder it. I would, I'd have to pick it apart more and say, yeah, I am afraid of dying, like the the process of dying. Um, I'm not afraid of being dead. I mean, I'm not afraid of. I think it was Pendulette that said, uh, and he may have gotten it from someone else. But like, I'm not afraid of the year, you know, 1862, before I existed. I'm not yeah. afraid of the year 2262 yeah. after I'm gone. Like, it's going to be fine. But yeah, you know, dying. Like, I'd, I'd I'd be lying if I said I wasn't afraid of, you know dying and, and so there's both like the process of dying like yeah it's usually not good it'd be nice if it was after many many years and just sort of you know i'd rather not fall you know die in my sleep i'd rather kind of be conscious but sort of just die fade out with old age maybe mm -hmm. but but like you know just being in an accident and like you know horrible diseases i've seen enough loved ones it's like yeah this is not good this is enough to be you know I, i'd like to say that i'm 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 peaceful and sort of balanced enough that I'm not concerned at all. But no, like yeah, I'm afraid of dying. Um, I, but I'm also concerned about. Um, I, th I think about family. Like I, I, I'm really I'm afraid or at least con you know concerned about like not being there. Like with a three year old, not being there, not being there for for him and my wife and my mom the rest the rest of her life. I'm concerned about not. I'm concerned more about like the harm that it would cause if I left prematurely and then kind of even bigger along the lines of some of the stuff that forward thinking we've been talking about. I, I think maybe way too much about just like, and I'll never know the answer. So even if I lived to, you know, 120, like, but like, I want to know as much as I can, but like, how is this going to work out? Like as humans, like, <laughs> are we, and, and a big one I think is, are we going to, and I don't think, unfortunately I'm going to learn it in my lifetime, even if I live to a ripe old age, but 
well, I don't know. Is this like, going to work start, out? Like, are, are we going to escape the planet? I think that's one of the biggies. Like, are we going to, like, the survival of the speed? Like, I think the next, like, the time we're in now, it's like with the nuclear weapons, with pandemics, and with, um, uh, I mean, we're going to get to the point where anyone can can build a hydrogen bomb. Like, you know, it's like, you, you just, like, the, the or, or engineer, like, the, you know, something that's a million times worse than COVID and then yeah. just spread it. It's like, yeah. we're getting to this period of, and, and then not, you know, not to mention climate change, you know, it's like, although I think that's not, there's probably going to be surviving humans with that regard, you know, but it could be really bad. But yeah, these but, existential threats, I think the only real guarantee that we're going to get another, you name it, thousand million, whatever years is like diversity, diver mm -hmm. diversify our portfolio, get, get off the planet, you know, um, don't leave this one. Hopefully we keep, you know, but like, and I, you know, it's like either we're going to get snuffed out like really quickly or we're going to like, if we, if we reach that point and it's going to be over the next like hundred, 200 years, like, yeah. like we're probably going to survive like, like until like, I mean, you, you know, like our son, like, and even beyond that, like, like we're probably going to be talking about millions and millions of years. It's like, and we're, we're I, I don't know in terms of the planet four billion years into this and depending on how you count our species you know we're you know we're millions of years into this and it's like it's this is like the point of the re relay race where we can really screw up so that would make you feel pretty good when you're on your deathbed at 120 years old and there's something hopeful about uh, there's a colony starting up on mars and it's like yeah hmm. titan like whatever you know like yeah, yeah like that we have these colonies out there that would tell me like yeah, then at least we'd be good until like the, you know, hopefully, probably until the the the, the sun goes red giant, you know what I mean? Yeah. Rather than, oh, like 20 years from now when there's some, someone with their finger on the nuclear button that just, you know, misperceives, a, a you know, the, the radar, you, you know, like the signal, they, they, they think Russia's attacking, they're really not, or, or China, and like that's probably how a nuclear accident war is going to start rather than... You know, or the, like I said, these other horrible things. Does it not make you sad that uh, you won't be there if uh, we are successful at proliferating throughout the observable universe, that you won't be there to experience any of it? It's just yeah. the ego death, right? It's the death because you're still going to die and it's still going to be over. Right. That, that's, uh, you know, Ernest Becker and those folks really emphasize the the terror of death that if we're honest we'll discover if we search within ourselves which is like this thing is going to be over most of our existence is uh based on the illusion that it's going to go forever and when you sort of realize it's actually going to be over like today like i might murder you at the end of this conversation <laughs> uh <laughs> it might be over today or like you go on going home this might be your last day on this earth and it's i mean uh like pondering that and I, I i suppose i suppose one thing to be me i i i if i were to push back it's interesting is you actually i think you see comfort in the sadness of how unfortunate it would be for your family to not have you because the really, even even the deeper, yes, but that's the simple fear. Even the deeper terror is like, 
like this this thing doesn't last forever. Like I think uh, I don't know there. Like if it's hard to put the right words to it, but it feels like that's not a, truly acknowledged by us, by each of each of us. Yeah, I think this is the. I, I mean, getting back to the psychedelics in terms of the people in our our work with cancer patients, who um, we had psilocybin sessions to help them, and it did substantially help them. Um, the vast majority. Um, in terms of dealing with these existential issues. And I think, you know, it's something we, I could say that I really feel that I've come along in that both like being with folks who have died that are close to me. And then also that work, I think are the two biggies and sort of like, you know, I, I think I've come along in that, you know, that sort of acceptance of this, like, like it's not going to last. Um, and even, whether at the personal level or even at the species level, like at some point, all the stars are going to fade out. And it's going to be the realm of black, which is going to be the vast majority if it can, unless there's a big crunch, which does, apparently doesn't seem likely. Like most of the universe, there's this blink of an eye that's happening right now that life is even possible, like the era of stars. So it's like, we're going to fade out at some point, like, you know, and, you know, then we get at this level of consciousness and like, okay, maybe there is life after death. Maybe there's, maybe time's an illusion. Maybe we're going to like, yeah. that part I'm ready for. Like, I'm, I'm like, you know, like stra- that's. That would be really great. And I'm looking, I'm not afraid of that at all. It's like, even if it's just strange, like if I could push a button to enter that door, I mean, I'm not going to, you know, die, you know, I can kill myself, but it's like, if I could take a peek at what that reality is or choose at the end of my life, if I could choose of entering into a, a universe where there is an afterlife of something completely unknown versus one where there's none, I think I'd say, well, let's see what's behind that. that <laughs> That's a true scientist way of thinking. If there's a door you're excited about opening it and going in. No matter, right. No but I am attracted to this idea. Like, like, you know, it's, and I recognize it's easier said than done to say I'm okay with not existing. Yeah. It's like the real test is like, okay, check me on my deathbed. You know, it's like, it's, oh, yes, I'd be all right. It's beautiful thing. And the humility of surrendering. And I, I really hope, and I think I'd probably be more likely to be in that realm right now. Yeah. Than I would like, if, you know, or check me when I get a, a, a terminal cancer diagnosis, and I really hope I'm more in that realm. But I, I know enough about human nature to know that, like, I don't want to. I can't really speak to that because I haven't been in that situation. And I think there can be a beauty to that, and the, the transcendence of like, yeah, and you know, it was it was beautiful, not just despite all that, but because of that, because ultimately there's going to be nothing, and because we came from nothing. And we dealt with all this shit. The fact that there was still beauty and truth and connection, like that, you know, like it just, it's a beautiful thing. But I, I hope I'm in that. It's easy to say that now. Like, yeah. Do you think there's a, a meaning to this thing we got going on? Uh, life, existence on earth to us individuals? from a psychedelics researcher perspective or from just a human perspective? Those, those merged together for me, like, because it's, it's just hard. I've been doing this research for almost 17 years and, and like, not just the cancer study, but so many times people like, I remember a session in this, in one of our studies, uh, someone who wasn't getting any treatment for anything, but one of our healthy, normal studies where he was contemplating the, the, the suicide of his son. Um, and just these, I mean, just like the most intense human experiences that you can have in the most vulnerable situations. Sometimes like people, like, 
you know, and it's just like you have to have a and you just feel lucky to be part of that process that people trust you to let their guards down like that. Um, like, I don't know the meaning. I, I think the meaning of of life is, is, to, is to find meaning. And I think I actually, I think I just described it a, a minute ago. It's like that transcendence of everything. Like the, it's the beauty, despite the, the absolute ugliness. It's the, it's yes. the, and as a species, and I think more about this, like I think about this a lot. It's the fact that we are, I mean, we're, we come from filth. I mean, we're, 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 you know, we're animals. We come from, like, we're all descendant from murderers and rapists. Like, we, despite that background, we are capable of this, this self-sacrifice and the connection and, 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 and figuring things out, you know, truth, science and other forms of truth, you know, seeking and, and an artwork, just the beauty of, of, of music and, and other forms of art. It's like, the fact that that's possible is mm-hmm. the meaning of of life. I mean, and ultimately, and, that feels to be creating a more and, and richer experiences. The from a Russian perspective, uh, both the dark, the you mentioned the cancer diagnosis or losing a, a child to suicide or uh, all those dark things is is still rich experiences. And also the the beautiful creations, the art, the music, the science, that's also rich experience. So somehow we're figuring out from just like psychedelics expand our mind to the possibility of experiences, somehow we're able to figure out different ways as a society to expand the realm of experiences. And from that we gain meaning somehow. Right. And that's part of like this, we're going across different levels here, but like the idea that so-called bad trips or challenging experiences yeah. are so common in psychedelic experiences. It's like, that's a part of that. Like, yeah, it's tough. And most of the important things in life are really, really tough and scary. And most of the things like, like the death of a loved one, like it, it told like the, the greatest learning experiences the things that make you who you are, are, are the horrors. And, and, you know, it's like, yeah, we try to minimize them. We try to avoid them, but and I, I don't know, I think we all need to get into the mode of like giving ourselves a break, both personally and societally. I mean, I went through like the, the in the I think a lot of people do these days in my 20s, like, like oh, the you know, humans are just, a, we're kind of a disease on the planet. And like, <laughs> yeah. and then in terms of our country, in terms of the United States, it's like, oh, we have all these horrible, you know, sins in our past. And it's like, I think about that, like the I think about it like my my three year old. It's like, yeah, you can construct a story where this is all just horrible. You can look at that stuff and say this is all just horror. Yeah. You know, where yard is like, there's no logical answer to our you know rational answer to say we're not a disease on the planet. From one lens, we are. You know, you know, and, and like there's, you could just look at humanity as that, like nothing but this horrible thing. You can look at any you and you name the system. You know, oh you know, modern medicine, Western medicine, you know, the university system. And it's like, you could dismiss right. everything. So, you know, big farm, like hopefully these vaccines work. And then like, okay, <laughs> yeah, I'd like to, you know, like yeah. I, I'm kind of glad the, the, big pharma was a part of that. Like, you know, and, and it's like the United States, you can like point to the horrors, like any other country that's been around a long time that has these legitimate horrors and kind of dismiss like these beautiful things like yeah we have this like modifiable constitutional republic that just 
like I still think is the best thing going, you know, um, that, that, that yeah. as a model system of like how humans have to figure out how to work together. It's like, it's how there's no better system that I've come across. Yeah. There's a, uh, if we're willing to look for it, there's a, uh, there's a beautiful core to a lot of the things we've created. Uh, yeah. This country is a, is a great example of that, but most of the human experience has a, has a beauty to it. Even the suffering. Right. So the meaning is fine is is choosing to focus on that positivity and not forget it. Beautifully put. Yeah. Speaking of experiences, this was one of uh, my favorite experiences on this podcast. Talking to you today, Matthew. I hope we get a chance to talk again. I hope to see you on Joe Rogan. It's a huge honor to talk to you. Can't wait to read your papers. Uh, thanks for talking today. Likewise, I very much enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Matthew Johnson, and thank you to our sponsors. Brave, a fast browser that feels like Chrome, but has more privacy-preserving features. Neuro, the maker of functional sugar-free gum and mints that I use to give my brain a quick caffeine boost. Four Sigmatic, the maker of delicious mushroom coffee. And Cash App, the app I use to send money to friends. Please check out these sponsors in the description to get a discount and to support this podcast. If you enjoy this thing, subscribe on YouTube, review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, support on Patreon, or connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman. And now let me leave you with some words from Terrence McKenna. Nature loves courage. You make the commitment and nature will respond to that commitment by removing impossible obstacles. Dream the impossible dream and the world will not grind you under. It will lift you up. This is the trick. This is what all these teachers and philosophers who really counted, who really touched the alchemical gold, this is what they understood. This is the shamanic dance in the waterfall. This is how magic is done, by hurling yourself into the abyss and discovering it's a feather bed. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.